Serato. What's up? My name is Cut Corners. This is Unscripted, and uh, we're back today with a very special guest. Um, today, of course, just before I get started, I want to acknowledge that it's Asian Pacific Heritage Month here, and I'm in Canada, uh, and that's in the U.S. as well, of course. Um, and so we're doing a, a, a big focus this month uh, called Spread Love. We've partnered with our friends Spread Love. That's Fran Boogie and Marky, aka Proof from the Bay. And we're going to be doing some pretty cool events over this uh, this month. We're doing a, a big show on the 21st featuring a bunch of incredible artists, uh, DJs. And we've got some special guests. We've got Oliver today. And we've also got uh, Frieza Chin on doing a, a Serato's Kitchen takeover uh, next week. And JMKM as our next unscripted guest after this one. But before I get into it, uh, well, most of all, I want to give a quick introduction ahead of bringing on Oliver. Um, so if you're not familiar with Oliver, Oliver is um, a DJ. He's actually, a, actually, I should be <laughs> very correct in saying Dr. Oliver Wang is a DJ, culture writer, and professor of sociology at CSU Long Beach. And he's written fantastic articles for NPR, Wax Poetics, published books. And I highly recommend his podcast, Maximum Fun. Um, I'm going to try and post that in somewhere. Actually, if someone can post that in the chat, that would be very helpful. And also his blog, Soul Sides. Um, so yeah, let's bring on Oliver. One, two, one, two. Oliver, can you hear us? I can hear you. Am I coming through? <laughs> yes. Welcome to oh, the show. You, you have a soundboard. This is fancy. Yeah, man. Uh, We're, we got the air point, horn, too. The name of the podcast is Self. It's called the Heat Rocks. Oh, my bad. The, the, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so maybe the website I got mixed up. It's all good. No, it's all good. So, yeah, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for being a guest today. Um, how are you doing? I am doing okay, all set. Under the circumstances, I think that's the, the qualifier that all of us have had to use in the last year and a half or, or so. We're doing fine under the circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah, man. You, so you've, you've survived the pan pandemic. Um, kind of what's, some of the, what's some of the ways you've found to get through this hard time or any kind of uh, revelations you've had? Um. Oh, I don't know about revelations, but um, <laughs> I mean, I think like a lot of people, I've watched more television uh, in the last year than I had. I, I mean, maybe not since I was a latchkey kid growing up in the 80s and only having the, the television to keep me company when I would come home from school. Um, but yeah, watching a lot of a lot of streaming streaming content. Uh, I mean, in all seriousness. I, I certainly was very privileged in, in, insofar as being a college professor. Uh, I've been able to work from home, uh, you know, since the lo since lockdown began in, in March of 2020. Um, and so I feel like myself and my family have managed to survive it. Um, you know, a lot of it because we, we have the privilege of being able to be at, at home from school, be at home for work uh, and so forth and so on. And so, I mean, to be really blunt, I mean, that's the primary way that we survived it is that we were able to stay sort of out of proverbial harm's way by virtue of the careers that we have or, the, you know, in my case of my daughter, because she's a high school student and, could, and can be at home from it. So those things were, I think, uh, you know, pretty important. Uh, I think on a personal level, again, as coping mechanisms, spending a lot of time, you know, watching things. Um, I did start the process. One of the, my lockdown projects was to begin to catalog like all this. Yeah, um, wow. using using discogs and in the process of just finding of, of putting stuff into the catalog inevitably i was also coming across records that i realized that for whatever purpose or value they might have had for me on a sentimental level or what have you at some point i didn't need to keep everything that i have and i mean this is something that i've realized for quite a long time 
when you're surrounded by this much vinyl. But I think it was the cataloging process really brought home, like, how much of this do I really absolutely need? And, you know, shout out to Marine Kondo. But, like, how many of these records truly give me joy? So I so part of the time spent on lockdown was going through my records and finding ways of, of thinning the herd, as they say, um, and trying to think philosophically, not that I got very far in this, but thinking philosophically, what 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 are records for? And in particular, what are records mean for me? What utility or value um, do they serve, whether it's sentimental or financial or whatever? I mean, whatever the case may be is really kind of visiting these questions that I think in the past I haven't because like a lot of DJs and, and record collectors, you know, we're kind of low key hoarders because we just figured the more that we have, the more we might be able to use in some capacity. At least that's how I used to justify my record spending habits is that, um, you know, this is stuff that's going to be for my radio show or it's going to be for a gig. But at a certain point, especially now that I, you know, I, I don't gig that regularly. Um, I do do I still do radio work, but it's like an hour a month uh, as opposed to three hours a week when I was doing uh, my college show back in the 90s. I realized, yeah, I don't really, I don't have a great justification for keeping everything that I have. And, and, and more to the point, at a certain point, and I think this is something that a lot of DJs and collectors can resonate with, the collection becomes a burden. And mm. I don't want to feel like it be, it's, it's a burden. I want it to feel like it's something that's joyful and that it's something that I derive pleasure or utility from. And the more unwieldy it is, the less I'm able to feel that way. And so... This is a very long-winded answer to your question. But yeah, one of the things I did do during quarantine was to begin to thin the herd and, and really think about what do I want my collection to mean for me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm much more uh, selective about buying records even now. Um, if, like it's, if it's not like a play the whole way through kind of LP, I'm, I'm probably going to skip on it, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah. But so um, what are some of the things that you've meditated on like through the pandemic um, that have allowed you to kind of come to some good uh, realizations, good or bad? Well, I mean, I think like I was saying a moment ago, I certainly have thought about what the, for lack of a more articulate phrase or term, you know, what the point of my library is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what do these records ultimately mean for me? Um, again, whether it's about some kind of utility value, right? Whether it's about the sentimental connection that I have for it, whether it is um, things that might become um, fodder for something that I could write about uh, down the road. Um, so, you know, my because I'm, as you mentioned in, in the intro, right? I'm a DJ, I'm a scholar, I'm a music writer. So records fill into all of those kind of professional capacities in a sense. Um, but you know, I, I don't, I don't keep this library because I feel like it has a professional uh, value to it. Um, even if it might, it, like I said, that's part of the, I think the psychology by which we convince ourselves that all this accumulation has a point. Um, but again, to answer your question in a very long winded way, I'm just thinking about what is it ultimately that these records mean? Um, and what records for whatever reason, just will never leave the library. And what are the ones that can go? And you know, why am I okay with letting it go when I went to the trouble of procuring them to begin with? Um, and so practically with any given record, I'm kind of walking myself through a series of questions around, again, why, why do I have this? Why do I need this? 
uh, do I need this? Uh, and so it's been, like I said, it's been an interesting process, which I know is not that descriptive, but it's because there's not like an overarching answer to it. Um, a lot of it is impulsive in terms of thinking, well, don't need this, but this one I do. What's the difference between the two? I don't really know. It's a gut thing. And, you know, I have the luxury of being able to decide between those things because I don't need to, I don't need to get rid of anything, but I, part, part of me feels like I really should for all the reasons that I've been saying. Yeah. It's at, at the very least, you've got this incredible background too. Like I know a lot of people have been faking the funk with the the fake backgrounds, but that's the real deal. Um, so that looks yes, really cool. it's it's very good for video calls like this where I want to have something that looks better than my home office background. So sure. <laughs> um, cool. When did you start like collecting records? Though was that like a like immediate thing as a youth? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I I I first started to buy records vinyl records to be specific um you know i think as early as high school so this would have been in the late 1980s but that really was not because i had a attraction to the medium it's because that was the primary format by which certain records um, were available so um in college uh, so i started college in 1990 and one of the first 12 inches that i remember ever buying was it was um the remix of Bonita Applebaum oh. by A Tribe Called Quest. And I think I might have tried to find it on on Maxi Single, for those who remember the cassette Maxi Singles from, oh, yeah. from back in the day. And I, I could be wrong, but for whatever reason, I couldn't find what I I couldn't find the 12-inch version that had the remixes on Cassingle. So instead I bought it on 12-inch. But again, it wasn't because I was like, oh, I need to have this on vinyl. It was because that was the medium by which I could procure the remixes that I wanted to listen to. So I think until really I became a DJ, um, a lot of the times that I was buying vinyl records was mostly because, like I said, it was the, it was a dominant format, especially as someone who was a hip-hop fan. I don't feel like... I, and even when I became a DJ, and this would have been around the summer of 93, is when I, I first got my decks. And even then buying vinyl was more about well that's what i need in order to dj with but i didn't really think about it as collecting um i actually just was telling this story to someone recently um i was uh, invited to speak in a classroom uh, led by ricky vincent who some of your uh, audience may know as being kind of one of the foremost experts on funk music um in the in america and he was teaching a class on um vinyl culture which is awesome it's I wish I could have taken that class yeah. back when I was an, an undergraduate. But in any case, I, he kind of asked me a, a similar question. And in thinking about the answer to that, I think my introduction into collecting really came when um, a good friend of mine, Jeff Chang, who, again, I think members of your audience would be uh, familiar with because he's a, a really important hip hop historian, um, also a, a DJ from back in the day. Um, he, he knew I was a De La Soul fan. And so he, one day I was hanging out with him, this would have been in like the early mid nineties. And he said, are you familiar with the baby Huey skit? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so he goes to his record, his record wall and he pulls out a test pressing from De La Soul's Say No Go that has this uh, baby Huey skit, which was a song that was only on that 12 inch that uses the Muppets theme. And because it uses the Muppets theme, which was very on brand for Daylight at the time. Like, totally. You know, if, you can, if, we are, if Prince Paul or the crew is going to sample from someplace, why not the Muppets, right? But because of that, I'm guessing Tommy Boy was like, yeah, we can't put this out because we're, we don't want to get sued. This is too obvious of a sample. I don't know why 
sampling Hall and Oates didn't strike them as having that same issue, but whatever. It's I, I'm, I'm not here to to uh, to litigate this. But for whatever reason, the Baby Huey skit never made it to the final commercial versions of the 12 inch, um, and so I had never heard this before. But the, because I was such a big Daylaw fan, the minute he played it for me, I'm like, okay, I need I need this 12 inch, and so that was to me, I think the first time I had an impulse or an understanding that there are records out there that have things that I might want that I need to put in effort to seek. That to me is like the collection or the collecting impulse in a nutshell, right? There's oh, something yeah. that I that's out there that's not easy to come by that I need. And so I would say that was probably my, my gateway drug into collecting yeah. uh, was the baby Huey skit uh, off of the Say No Go test pressing. Well, shout out Maceo and the gang. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's such a cool thing to talk about with uh, vinyl specifically, you know, that it has like an instrumental or an acapella, like those things are still so treasured these days. And, and that was the thing that really got me into it, being like a fan of Lego and thing like the fact that, you know, you're, all, all of a sudden your records were kind of interchangeable. You could start like mixing and matching. It just, yeah, it was crazy. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you talked about Jeff um, and he's also a journalist. You're obviously very well known as a journalist. Um, so... What was um what 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 did, you, what did you get into first? Was it music or journalism or how did, how did that kind of come about? No, I got into music first, and my interest in journalism and writing in general. Because I, to be clear, I never saw myself, at least not at the time. My aspiration wasn't necessarily to become like a journalist, because in my mind, what that meant, and I'm talking about when I was in my early twenties, being a journalist was like you know, you were Woodward and Bernstein, right? It was, it was about investigative reporting and like that, that's not what I was interested in. What I wanted to do is I wanted to write about music and culture and society. Um, you know, I, I, I've said this in other interviews, James Baldwin was a huge inspiration to me and like a gazillion other people on the planet because he was such an incredible writer and his ability to, to speak truth to power and just the way in which he demonstrated to me the power of what writing can do as a way of convincing or encouraging one inspiring one to think differently um that was something that that made me want to think about like writing and the craft of writing and what it can come accomplish so that was one of the first things but my interest in writing about music came largely because i loved music and specifically right really really specifically because i loved hip-hop it wasn't because i loved music writ large it was because i loved hip-hop and especially in the 90s right the writing around hip-hop was limited to really a, you know a relatively small handful of outlets so source magazine rap pages um occasionally in a local newspaper or an alt weekly you might see um, an album being reviewed, but it really certainly wasn't part of the mainstream by any stretch of the imagination. And so as a hip hop fan, as someone who was getting into DJing and primarily playing hip hop records, I saw writing as another avenue into being involved with hip hop culture, the community of, of other hip hop fans. Um, all of those writing was a conduit to becoming more engaged um, more participatory in that respect. And so it was people like Jeff Chang because he was writing about hip hop. And I had not, at, at, up until that point, I hadn't met someone else who was, uh, comes, you know, same, my, my same background, someone who was Chinese American who was writing about hip hop. But I realized, well, if Jeff can do it, then that probably means that I can too. And then in addition to that, um, Danielle Smith, who would later become, of course, like a very, very, you know, pre, you know well known and 
successful editor and, and journalist in, in her own right. She had gotten her start writing, I believe, for the East Bay Express, which was an alternative weekly newspaper in the Bay Area. So, and she was writing a lot about R&B and hip hop. And so seeing Danielle doing it was like, okay, this gives me another example of what you know writing could look like. Um, and then at some point, I don't really remember who turned me on to this, but two different books, one by Greg Tate, one by Nelson George, both came out in the early 90s. Actually, I probably read about both books in The Source um, or you know a similar magazine. And I went out and, and those were both collections of essays that both Greg and Nelson had written, not exclusively, but very heavily about music and specifically about hip hop, you know, dating back to the early 80s, because uh, in both cases, they had gotten their start writing for places like the Village Voice or Billboard magazine. So they compiled a lot of their reviews and essays. And so this we, these were also points of inspiration and points of just kind of laying out a roadmap that, well, if what I'm interested to do in doing is writing about music, here are ways to do it, right? And here are the people who've done it, and this is the ways in which they've done it. And so I think all of these things were big inspirations in terms of leading me down that path. But Jeff really enters into this picture on a professional level because I had started writing as a freelancer around 94, uh, pretty much right after I graduated college. But I was mostly writing columns dealing more with Asian American issues, identity, community stuff. I wasn't really writing about music yet. But Jeff, who I, we had become friends at this point, um, at the time he was helping out at um, Herb Magazine out of Los Angeles, URB, which again, hopefully some of your audience members are familiar with the history of Herb. And um, Jeff knew I was interested in writing and basically asked if I would have any interest. And I think initially they had me writing 12-inch reviews. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, sure. And so that opportunity within, I think, a year led to me taking over the 12-inch review section, which then led me to take over the 12-inch and hip-hop album review sections. Meanwhile, so I was editing for Herb doing all of this and then also was cutting my teeth writing about music um, for the San Francisco Bay Guardian, another alternative weekly. Um, and between that and Herb, those two outlets, I think, were the most meaningful to me uh, in my early career. So we're talking like mid nineties through the, the remainder of the decade. Those are the two places that really I, I credit as where I was able to cut my teeth, so to say, where I learned more about the craft of how to write, um, you know, getting good editing, especially at the Bay Guardian that I think helped me become a better writer. So that by the end of the nineties, I was now able as a freelancer to be able to pitch myself to a lot of many, many other outlets, uh, you know, including the source, for example, um, and uh, I mean, a whole slew of all weeklies, um, newspapers, magazines. Um, but really it all started in the, in that kind of mid nineties period is when I got my start. Awesome. I'm just going to pull up real quick. Um, the herb magazine, we're going to talk a bit more about this in a little bit, but this is the yeah. classic herb magazine. This is one of my favorite covers ever. This is right. a moment when I discovered DJ culture really, um, yeah. this is the turning the person point. who. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I know that issue really, really well. It's the DJ issue that Herb put out. Um, that cover photo is by uh, Brian Crosby+. Plus. The story was written by my primary editor at Herb at the time, James Ty. Shout out to James. I, I have not talked to him in years. I have no idea what he's up to, but um, he was very, very formative um, in helping me get my start as a writer. Um, and just kind of quick anecdote, but um, myself and, and, and Brian, the, photo the photographer who took that photo, um, we ended up doing a a a, um, a trade, right? And one of the things that I traded um, a 
it's a longer story. I'm gonna give you the short version. I traded him a record in exchange for some of his photos. And so he was basically just going through his bin of prints. And one of the prints was from the same photo shoot that that Pickles picture is taken from. But it's not the same picture. It's, it's a different photo that wasn't used for the cover. And the minute I saw that, I'm like, boom, that's one of the ones I want for the trade. So I actually have a, another photo from that shoot framed in my house, which and, you know, for reasons that we'll get into, I mean, that cover, that story, those guys all mean a lot to sort of my personal and professional development. Wow. Um, that's so cool, man. I mean, that was like such a formative, you know, time in at least my life. So I'm, that's really cool hearing the, the kind of the, the back, the, the, the behind the scenes, if you will, of that. Um, also, um, you talked about Nelson George, another a really inf influential book for me was, uh, I think it was a Yes, Yes, Y'all. It was like a book he made uh, that really like talked about the early beginning of, um, of yeah, of, of the, the formation of, of rap music. And yeah, incredible writer and, and that perspective, especially for me coming from New Zealand, I didn't know really like a lot of the events that led up to it. I had, I was so far removed from New York. It was like, an incredible, incredible book. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out those guys. And did, so Jeff Chang, did he write for the source as well? You know, I don't recall off the top if he did. Um, he was writing for... I mean, certainly he wrote a lot for Herb, and I'm sure there were other outlets, especially in the early 90s when he got his start. So I was about maybe, you know, four or five years behind him, and, and I don't fully remember where he was writing. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was writing for Rap Pages at the very least okay. because it was based out of the West Coast, and Jeff's such a West Coast guy. Um, he might have been writing for The Source, but I don't recall his byline there, but it certainly was, I mean, I, I associate him very heavily with Herb. Uh, and I believe he did some stuff for Rap Pages as well. Okay, cool. Shout out Rap Pages. It's another iconic rap magazine uh, from yeah. the '90s. Um, so we've got we've got a bit of a story about your your journalism beginning. Can you tell me a bit about your um, your um, your first introduction to DJ and some pivotal moments? Oh yeah. Uh, so really, my introduction came through um, when I was a sophomore, and this goes back to my undergraduate days. Um, I, I attended UC Berkeley, and the beginning of my sophomore year, my roommate. Josh Greenberg, shout out to Josh. Um, he wanted to volunteer at the radio station, um, KALX, which is the college station at Berkeley. Very, I mean, a really well-known, very, um, how would I put it, a very well-regarded college station uh, around the around the around the, the sorry around the country. And it had never occurred to me at that point to work at a radio station. I mean, I love radio. I, I grew up listening to radio, like you know, many you know many seventies babies. Um, but it never occurred to me to actually, you know, be at a radio station. And, but when he said, oh, I'm going to go to this, um, you know, informational meeting and orientation meeting about people volunteering at the station, I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Like, let me come with you. And so I went and we both ended up volunteering at the station. Um, I think he lasted about two months. And then I was there until from 1991 until I think 2004 so i stayed on 13 years longer wow. um and so becoming a radio a college radio dj was my introduction into just sort of the broad world of djing but specifically in terms of a person who spins and mixes records that came through a different dj that i met at calx uh benny b who some people again people in your audience may know in terms of a well-known bay area dj um he started abb records in the 90s so a really important um, independent hip hop uh, label out of the Bay. And 
the way that Calix used to have their station set up is, I mean, they had three different turntable stations, but it wasn't set up for hip hop DJing use. In other words, there was no mixer with a crossfader. It just had like a classic radio station sound mixing board. So if, if you wanted to do like, uh, if you want to do a mix show style set, you had to bring in your own equipment. And that's what Benny would do. Uh, I would think on a weekly basis is he would bring his 1200s. And I think he had one of the, um, was it those Jazzy Jeff like wood-sided panel realistic mixers, or maybe they were? It was made by uh, I, I forget who who else. Maybe it wasn't realistic. It was um, Gemini. Oh God, yeah, I think it might have been the Gemini mixer. I think he had one of those, and so he would set it up in the station. You know, plug into the 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 aux in on the soundboard, and just do a classic, what I consider to be a classic mix show style set for his shows, and he. I've never really asked Benny about this, but I always got the sense that he got his DJ training or what he learned from were mostly New York DJs because I always associate the kind of sets that he would do where he was doubling up um, and just kind of cutting back and forth um, with being a very kind of East Coast style of DJing. And I just remember sitting in on his shows and watching him. I mean, we were we were required to sit in on other people's show as part of our training, right? So I would sit in on, on Benny's show. And I would just marvel at how much fun it looked like he was having. And so as a consequence of that, I was like, okay, whatever he's doing, like I want to do. And so by the summer of 93, I'd been to the station for a little bit over, I think, a year or actually close to two years at that point. But in the summer of 93, wait, is that right? Was it the summer of 93? I think it was the summer of 93 is I went out and, and bought my, my first pair of 1200s and some really whack it was a, I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, I'm, it was a Gemini mixer, like a really cheap model that, you know, the, the, the fader felt like it was, it had super glue stickied on it. Like it was, it was terrible, but it was like the classic, like first mixer that you buy when you're mostly broke and you don't really know any better. Um, you know, the Vestex hadn't come out with the 05 Pro yet, which would have, which became the standard, you know, a few years after that. Um, but that's basically when I got started DJing. So the radio is, the radio station is where I started, but it was my encounter with people doing, with mixed DJs that led me to want to become a DJ in that, in that, uh, fashion. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, man, I, I remember my first mixer too. And it's crazy that, you know, the kind of uh, mixers you can get these days, the technology and the, you know, the, there's a market, such a market, it's a whole business that you can, you can buy a, a right. affordable mixer that plays great. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm wondering if, if I would have started off instead buying a controller, I, I can imagine that, especially given how much 1200s or, or the equivalent cost these days, you know, maybe I would have started with something like a rain one or, I mean, I don't know. Cause it's, it's weird for me to imagine that as being where one starts only because I'm old school. And I feel like if you're going to start DJing, you should start with turntables and vinyl, but look, I'm not trying to judge. So, you know, someone who gets into DJing because they buy something really inexpensive, like, you know, like one of those new controllers that have control wheels, why not that being the starting point? But you know, back in 93, if you wanted to DJ, you got turntables you, and vinyl records and a mixer. Like, that was it. That was the only option that you had. And I'm glad it was the only option because at least I was not confronted with, like, a gazillion choices. You know, what you knew is you bought 1200s and then you got whatever mixer you could work with it. And that was a pretty good start because uh, you can't see it. It's, it's, to, it's over here to my left. I still have those same turntables 28 years later. Yeah, same. The only thing is um, to consider now is that 
I mean, I'm, I know you can still get vinyl pretty affordably, but man, I, I mean, going to the record store now and buying vinyl, you know, a, a, a full length album, I was like, you know, at least in Canada, like 30, 40 bucks. It's, it wasn't, it's not quite the same as 12 inch singles for, you know, six or $7 back in the day. So, you know, yeah. again, again yeah. dating yeah, myself. The, I mean, well, I mean, this is, there's partly, certainly inflation plays a role in this, yeah. um, but it's also, I think, especially during lockdown, I mean, this is a whole other side conversation that I've been, I've been getting into with folks about the feeling that, that vinyl prices have gone up, especially on the secondary market, have gone up dramatically during lockdown and, you know, for various supply demand uh, reasons. But I, I feel like that's real because, I mean, I'm seeing like stunning prices for stuff that literally only came out maybe about a year or two ago. Um, but you know, people have, I, I don't know, I guess they're using their, their stimulus checks to like, you know, <laughs> cop some splatter vinyl limited edition RSD stuff. But, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to see, but again, that's a whole other side conversation. I will, I will, I will just take one pivot here though and say that, um, I read in, in some of the research while I was doing, doing this, uh, in preparation for this interview, that one of your favorite record stores is Groove Merchant in San Francisco. Um, it, can yeah. you attest to that? Is that true? It absolutely is. And what I continually regret is that even though I had heard of the Groove Merchant as early as the mid late nineties, because it had already, you know, acquired a reputation as being one of the best boutique stores in the country, actually in the world, in a lot of ways. Um, and it was in San Francisco and I was going to San Francisco to go to places like, you know, Amoeba in San Francisco or other record stores there. But for whatever reason, I just didn't bother to go to the Groove Merchant. And again, I don't, I can't tell you why I didn't. I just didn't. And it wasn't until probably about 2000 or 2001, at which point the store had been open for probably close to 10 years. I finally stepped in there, uh, met cool Chris Veltry, who still runs it. And I mean, it was like finding like a new home. And it was one of those things where I should have been here always, like always, 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 I should have been there. Um, but, you know, I was late from my point of view i was late getting there but once i got there like i basically have never left and, and, and when i was living when i was still living in san francisco um this was after my daughter was born so i was a stay-at-home dad and partly to kind of get out of the house myself and to get her out of the house you know i would plop her into like a baby bjorn uh take the muni train like the light rail system in san francisco and you know um the groove merchant was only about maybe 10 15 minutes away from me um by muni and at least a couple times a week, I would kind of pop in there with my with my kid and top it up with Chris, maybe buy a record or two, maybe bring him some stuff to trade. And I was just in there like all the time. And the one thing I don't I don't miss a lot of things about living in the Bay Area, you know, the traffic, the cost of living. I miss I miss going to the Groove Merchant like you you couldn't believe. Um, and. Every, you know, I still have my in-laws still live up there. So we have reasons and I still have friends who live up there. So we have reasons to go back to the Bay Area. And the one thing that I absolutely have to do on any trip is I got to make a pilgrimage and I got to go to the Groove Merchant. Yeah, man. Uh, I've had, I, I was obviously very late to it being not from, you know, the States and stuff. But when I've made it, every time I've gone to Groove Merchant, I've had incredible purchases, fair prices, great, great conversation with Chris. And also um, shout out to my friend, uh, Josh, aka Because, uh, who also yeah. works there. Shout out to yeah, and Vinny Esparza, who I used to do a DJ night with, also someone I met through the Groove the Groove Merchant as well. So, I mean, just a great community of people. And uh, so, I just saw someone in the chat say, you know, Ku Chris has the most accurate nickname ever. What what's up, Ross? Um, it's completely true. I mean, you, you know, record 
people record proprietors have this reputation basically being just a, another version of like the record store guy or if you've ever watched high fidelity right the movie you know those the, the people running robin and his crew these are our impressions of what record store um people are like and there's a lot of truth in that if you've spent a lot enough time in, in visiting different record stores you will run into like record store guys oh yeah cool chris is as far from that stereotype as you can imagine um i mean he's chill hence the, the nickname right but he's just incredibly generous with knowledge his patience is way beyond what i can muster um in terms of like his dealing with you know some of his customers um but mostly it's just he's there to kind of share information and share knowledge and i think the value and this is you know this this point has come up a lot in which we talk about how even though as much of, as vinyl culture has moved online and those discussions happen you know in those spaces and shout out to everyone who especially in this audience whoever was on on soul strut because that was incredibly important in the, you know 20 years ago in the early 2000s um you know pre-social media uh, platforms um but despite that you know the value of a good record store is it's a community base like when it's like the the best kind of record stores are they're community centers right they're community hubs where people can congregate and converse and share knowledge and yeah and, and then occasionally leave home with a good record or two but it's more than just the product really it's about kind of this communal space in which again you can meet people and talk and i think that value there is still value in that physical space and obviously you know i used to you give the spiel let's say 10 or even 20 years ago when a lot of mom and pop stores all closed across the course of the 90s and through the you know the first part of the the the, the 2000s because the vinyl you know the vinyl market had had dropped to its lowest point that's come back to some extent right the whole vinyl revival uh, discussion so you see more stores coming back here um, but nonetheless, you know, I still really very much feel like having a good neighborhood record store is incredibly invaluable to people's musical education. And again, just finding other people with like-minded interests. And that's, that's the real value that these stores have. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting, like a couple of things you talked about already in this interview uh, were brought to my attention just the other day by my friend Delve uh, from Hawaii, aka Chris Cam. Shout out, Chris. Uh, he's an amazing guy. And I think that in a lot of uh, especially our generation. I mean, I'm saying this, I hope I don't sound like too much of an old head, but you know, one of, one of the things that may not be as apparent right now, because we live in such an internet culture and we're doing something like this on the internet. Um, but like you talk about rap pages, you talk about the source and herb. Uh, we talk about record stores, which it makes me realize that a lot of the, um, the culture that we, we love so much that is so easy to access these days was definitely not that way at all. And it was, part of like the discovery that made it so novel and interesting and fascinating um, and yeah record stores magazines all these like very kind of um yeah subculture you know platforms were, were the only place the only places to find it now now you can go on instagram or you can go on the internet and find it very easily right. but there was no who sampled in and, and and that's where someone like cool chris or because or you know were so helpful in in sharing that knowledge. sure right Right. I mean, I was going to say there wasn't who sampled, but there was the breaks.com, which is what <laughs> who sampled pretty much took, I'm sure, like 90% of their database when they first launched. Um, so, I mean, the internet, and again, I, I'm not trying to describe this as, even though I probably just framed it this way, I should be a little bit more nuanced about it. I'm not suggesting that it's an either or. I think for me, I mean, a lot of my 
overwhelmingly like my record buying these days is is online right i don't spend a lot of time in physical stores um especially in la because you just have to drive everywhere to do it mm. um you know but in i've learned far more about music i think because of the conversations i've been able to have with people online so i'm not i'm not suggesting that that's somehow lesser um or diminished in any way that said though I think having these kinds of interactions and, you know, to loop back to where we started this conversation, right. You know, a lot of us have been more or less stuck at home for over a year, right. In a way that is completely unprecedented for most of us in life. Right. And I think it, it's a reminder of what we lose when we're not able to socialize in public, when we're not able to congregate, when we're not able to meet up with, with our friends and loved ones in person. So I think, you know, the ways in which we might've taken some of those kind of like physical world, interactions for granted i think we we now realize how valuable they are and i think the point i was really trying to make is that what a good record store does is it provides that physical space for those encounters and exchanges to happen and yes those things can also happen online but again i still think there's a kind of a magic if you will about sort of meeting in the in the physical space that can't just be instantly replicated um, or duplicated um, online, even though, of course, you and I are having this conversation because <laughs> the internet exists, right? All the Everyone in the audience in the chat, they're able to participate in this because those things exist. So I'm certainly not anti-digital or anti-internet in, in, in the least. That's that's That wasn't my, my argument at all. They can um, coexist. Yeah, they, they do. And I think probably, you know, people who use, I mean, people who, are here participating like they live this in both ways right the analog and the digital all the time yeah so um yeah it, it appears that you you definitely have an incredible love of music just the way you speak about it and you make it a central part of your life but um you're, you're also a professor uh at, at csu long beach like how do you how do you balance those things is it complementary <laughs> to your job <laughs> um I mean, I mean, yeah, sure, absolutely. Because the things that I write about as a writer might inform what I write about as a scholar or what I study as a scholar and vice versa. Um, you know, I oftentimes will double dip. In other words, something that might have drawn my attention as a scholar might be something that I end up writing about as a journalist and the other way around. Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, the balance part of it in terms of people ask me a lot, like, how do I juggle, you know, being a writer, a scholar, a DJ, you know, dad, husband, the whole nine. And the secret is, you know, I juggle these things and occasionally the balls drop and then I got to stop and then pick them up and then start over again. So in other words, I don't juggle it particularly well. It's just <laughs> you, you try to multitask to the best of your ability and occasionally something that you had maybe neglected a little bit um, ends up raising its hand, so to say, and you're like, oh, I better, you know, give some attention over there. And then you end up shifting your attention and then something else gets neglected and you shift back. So it's a lot of just kind of like constant pivoting uh, to, you know, to balance everything in. And uh, I mean, the, the upside I'll say about being a professor and to be specific, because I'm a tenured, right, full-time professor. So I have tremendous privilege in that sense is because I have job security, right? Um, and job stability is that being an academic, because it's not a conventional nine to five, it affords me the time to be able to then spend on doing other things that I'm interested in. Uh, whereas if I had more of a conventional 40 hour a week office job, I probably couldn't do half the things that I do because work 
would soak up so much of that. Mm -hmm. But because, in, you know, the, the life as a professor, you have more flexibility around your hours. And to go back to our previous point, because the things that I'm interested in extracurricularly also factor into the things that I do as a professor, then there's kind of the synergy between all of my different interests. Because you're, you're a professor, professor of sociology, is that is that right? That's right, yeah. So, so yes, does, I mean, there's got to be some crossover there for sure, right? Like sociology and, and, and music history. Is that, would that be correct or am I just completely off? Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, sociology as a discipline has a, you know, many, many, many different facets. Um, I guess I would primarily describe myself as a sociologist interested in popular culture um, as well as race and ethnicity, which were, those were my kind of core areas of training. Um, but, you know, my interest in sociology or how I apply sociology to my other interests, um, you know, it includes learning about the kind of larger social historical context, for example, behind, you know, genres. Um, so I've written, for example, a lot about boogaloo music out of New York City, Latin boogaloo from the mid 60s uh, that came out of East Harlem. Um, and I mean, I love boogaloo just as, as music, right? I mean, it's just kind of those Afro-Cuban rhythms. They're incredibly infectious. To me, they're, it's super fun to play out as a DJ. But boogaloo has this amazing story about, it's about this generational shift amongst these young, many times teenager, um, you know, Puerto Rican-American, Cuban-American, Dominican-American, right? Latino youth growing up in, um, in East Harlem, right? And wanting to distinguish themselves from their the older generation, so the Tito Puentes, the Mambo Kings, who were big in the '50s and were still, you know, still had dominance within the Latin scene, scene in the '60s. But this younger generation, it's like they want in on the game, right? They don't want to feel like they always have to, you know, be shunted aside just so, like, you know, Tito Rodriguez can have a gig. They want that gig instead. And Latin Boogaloo becomes the musical style by which they that belongs to them because it reflects the fact that they grew up on the one hand you know listening to mambo listening to uh cha 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 pachangas charangas right whatever it might be the case but they also grew up listening to r&b and doo-wop music and basically just sort of black popular music and so boogaloo merges all of these things into this kind of fusion genre that these young generation that the younger this, this younger generation can become the kings of and so for this brief but shining moment they're now the headliners it's not the titos anymore right it's the joe patans it is the joe cuba sextets um it is the uh, pete rodriguez's right they're the ones who now become dominant within this um are making records or charting on radio stations and whatnot but my point here is that there is a deeper kind of social cultural context behind the rise of Latin Boogaloo. And I think as a sociologist, those are the th stories and the histories and the context that interest me and allow me to kind of align, on the one hand, my interest in Boogaloo, Latin bu Boogaloo as a musical style, but then the kind of the Boogaloo community and the history behind that community. That's where these things all come into play with one another. That's so cool, man. And you know what's really interesting? I've recently uh, taken upon myself to, to really understand the history behind reggaeton. And that's actually a very similar story in a lot of ways um obviously it's it's different and spread across the you know puerto rica and puerto rico and a lot of other latin american um uh, islands you know and south america and so forth that whole story though is is very much that next generation they want to make a name for themselves they have their own style and, and yeah. they really care about that 
Um, and one other thing, I just saw uh, Data, shout out Data in the chat. He, he mentioned Joe Batan, who's an Afro-Filipino. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. one of my favorite songs recently was covered by one of my favorite artists, uh, Chaz, um, a.k.a. Toro y Moi. Uh, he did a cover of a Joe Batan song, which is highly recommended uh, if you uh, want to check it out, anyone in the chat. So good. Um, but that's, yeah, that's really awesome. Um, so I guess lead into my next my next question though as a as a professor as a professor, have you ever felt that uh, academics have had a negative um, opinion of DJ culture or, or hip hop music? I am certain that exists, right? <laughs> and if I had more time, I could probably find some citations of examples of that. But I would say the community of academics that I feel a part of and that I feel kinship with, I mean, not at all. Um, and you know, I mean, part of it is, is, I mean, there's two different things going on there. One is that, you know, I'm now in my late forties. So I was, of, I came of age as a teenager at the same time that hip hop effectively was also coming of age. And there are now, right. By in, talking about this in 2021, like there are multiple mini generations of people, all of whom grew up on hip hop uh, and on DJing. We're now you know, old enough to be professors. And so when you become a professor, it's not like all your previous interests get thrown into a closet someplace and buried, right? You come into like your profession, it doesn't matter what you do, you could be doing anything, but you're going to bring yourself and your interests with it. And so not surprisingly, you know, the kind of academic approach to DJing and DJ culture and hip hop, et cetera, has only gotten, you know, greater because you have all of these generations of people who grew up with hip hop for whom it is, you know, in a sense, kind of like a, a native tongue, right? Pun intended, that just because we can be professors doesn't mean that we somehow stop being interested in those other things. Rather, we take those interests and bring them into the profession with us. And so that's really helped to change the tenor and the tone. But beyond that, I mean, there is a whole, like, cottage industry within academia of people who have studied DJing and hip-hop because of the... because hip-hop came up and DJing culture came up, you know, concurrent with the development and embracement, embracement, is that even a word? Um, with the popularity and the popularization, I should say, of postmodern theory. And, you know, things like how DJs will cut up records and do remixes on the fly, right? Pastiche culture is was another way of saying it. Like, that plays incredibly well with a lot of aspects of postmodern theory. So a lot of people who weren't necessarily inherently interested in DJing as practitioners, nonetheless, they would see these videos of DJs cutting up records and again, kind of remixing stuff on the fly. And they're like, ah, this is something that I have a theory now that I can bring these examples into and I can write about those things. So to me, it's, it's actually, I mean, there's a, I think so. Again, a subset of academia that absolutely embraces DJing and DJ culture and sampling and hip hop, et cetera, because it aligns so well with the development of theories that have come along concurrent to all of this happening as well. Yeah, that's really awesome. And it's, it's really great to hear, like, like you said, you know, our, this generation is kind of. I guess giving it a, a chance or, or you know promoting it as a really legitimate um, topic. I just feel like I guess um, you know as somebody uh, who who went to school for music, um, specifically jazz improvisation, that yeah. it's it's almost like a cycle uh, in in academia that 
it takes a little while for like things that are a popular culture to get accepted by the academic profession and then you right. know be studied and and dissected if if you will and yeah yeah i mean i guess what i want to emphasize here is i'm not suggesting that academia as a whole right especially music departments i mean music departments and i i never went through a music department formally i've taken classes within them but i wasn't i wasn't a music major for example yeah i mean there's a lot of much more kind of traditionalism within those departments that might be more hostile to you know newer forms of 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 pop music especially ones that don't rely on kind of traditional notions of of music playing, music reading, so forth and so on, right? That's all, I think, completely true. So it's not that I'm suggesting that academia as a whole has been converted into like embracing DJing or any of those things, but there is a very visible, right, subset at least of scholars who write about this stuff, um, who, you know, who were absolutely inspiring to me when I was doing this research myself, and that, I mean, it's, so in other words, even if we're even if we don't represent the mainstream within academia, there's enough of us that it's not hard to find. So mm. I've never felt like I had difficulty finding kinship with other scholars who were interested in the same things that I was interested in, even if on the even if on the whole, maybe our interests are on the margins of where kind of mainstream conventional traditional scholarship lie. We might be on the margins, but we're out there together on the margins. Like we got a crew out there is really what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And so I think for that reason, even if I felt like there was hostility or at least apathy towards the things that I was interested in from, again, whatever you describe as mainstream traditional academia, I never felt like I was out in the cold by myself, right? There was always going to be people that I could converse with, that I could exchange ideas with, that I could collaborate with, which just told me that. Well, there's a space for us as well. Um, And I think that more than anything is kind of the important part of it. We don't have to be dominant, but as long as there's enough of us there, then we feel like, great, we have a community, we got crew, this is a place for us that we can exist. That's so cool. Um, And also um, brings to mind that Ninth Wonder has a a teacher now as well. Um, He's the professor at, um, I'm not too sure exactly where, I'm sure somebody in the chat will know, but yeah, you're right. It definitely seems like it changes is coming so it's pretty cool um my next question though for you is um what are some of your most like impactful records and if you had to play like someone a song that says this is what djing means to me um what would it be yeah so i'm going to confess something to uh to the audience here even though this thing is called unscripted like <laughs> you you did send me a list of of questions right yeah, to help me prep so it was it was a bit of a script um and so i thought about this one a lot and the example that i came up with um, in terms of a record that represents DJing to me. So when I started off, when I, when I first started DJing in, in the early and in, in mid nineties, um, I was very much influenced by mixers. Uh, and, and partly that's because you know, that was kind of the, the dominant style of, of how people DJed was all about blends and doing, you know, 16 bar overlaps to create these seamless transitions. Um, and one of my favorite examples of just hearing like a, a live blend that, that completely blew my mind. And I wish I could be precise in who I give credit to. It was definitely one of the beat junkies. I'm pretty sure it was J-Rock. I could get that part wrong, but it was definitely one of the junkies who did it. But what they did was they took doubles of a war tour by A Tribe Called Quest, which has a war tour. It has the instrumental to a war tour on it. And importantly, 
it has um, a version of the Chase Part 2 that's on the B side of that single. And so what what the DJ figured out, and I think it's J-Rock, so I'm just going to get it. It's the funky Brez. What J- what, right. What J-Rock figured out is if you cut on the chorus of a war tour and you swap over to the instrumental version of, of war tour, that chorus is long enough where you can then flip around the other disc, bring up chase part two. I think you had to speed it up by at least maybe four to six BPM. I, I could have that part wrong. And then as the chorus ends, you can basically bring in the chase part two, which of course begins with that ill Bismarck key sample. And those two things went together like beautifully i thought it was like one of the most genius things i'd ever seen because you're just using two copies of the same thing two different songs on it well actually three different tracks on it and then creating something that just felt organically brilliant in terms of how to use that one record to create like these two different kinds of musical moments well ladies and gentlemen we have the most unscripted moment right here and prep we can play this to you we have a sample Yeah, shout out if that if that was J Rock, shout out J Rock. We actually had him on the podcast a little while ago, and um, yeah, he's yeah. Oh, Jay's the best. He's yeah. such an inspiration, man. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, shout out, shout out J Rock. Um, so I mean, that's a great great example, though. It's so cool. I don't even know that. I I didn't know about that twelve inch situation. So um, yeah, thank you for putting me onto that. Right. Um, and then uh, I mean the other. Yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please, you go. I think we're going to get to the same part. <laughs> no, no, I mean, the, the other example I thought about, so that record, that example really, to me, captured what I thought about DJing back when mixing was the, the main thing that I was focused on, right? Is how do you go from one record to another and make it, do it in a way that it is, you know, amazing and produces like this reaction from the crowd. As I've gotten older, I've become more, invested i think in what i describe as the selector dimensions of being a dj which is really all about picking the right song and the right time to play it um and that includes songs that i think finding songs that have to me like perfect formal construction in terms of how they're actually assembled as as a song that you can pretty much slip it in into any set and just the, the the structure of the song itself allows you to kind of drop it in come in and out of it and you know, there's these kind of, I describe them as almost bridge songs because you can use it to bridge different parts of your set as you need to. And you don't necessarily need to worry about, you know, necessarily beat matching it because the way in which the songs are constructed doesn't require you to have to do that. So to give you an example of this um, is one of my favorite, my, one of my favorite examples, uh, going back to what I was discussing earlier about Latin Boogaloo, is Watusi Boogaloo, which was a song done by Willie Rosario in 1968, uh, I think on ATCO. And first of all, it just opens with this one of the best, like, Afro-Cuban piano uh, Montuno riffs that I know of. Mm-hmm. 
caballito en el avión y ya tienen a Guatusi bailando en Bugalú. ¡Juega, Guatusi! ¡Muchacho! So, I mean, that intro, it, it doesn't matter what you're mixing it into from or coming out of. Like, it could be it could be hip-hop, it could be soul, it could be funk. Like, it's so infectious, it doesn't matter. Like, you can just kind of throw that in the mix. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it would work after, like, you know, Anti-Up by M.O.P. I could be wrong. I guess I'd have to try it in real time. We can try that. No, but, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it works beautifully into, and then if you don't mind speeding up to, like, the last, like, 20 seconds of the song, it has the perfect outro to be able to bring in anything you want in the back end of it. All right, let's get to this part. And then boom, whatever you want to bring in, there it is. is So to me, like a song like Watusi Boogaloo, you know, when I think about like records and DJing, like that is like a perfect record because it has so much use. I mean, it's a great song in and of itself. So that's the most important part of it. But in addition to that, it's just such a great song because it's so flexible. It's so versatile. And so, again, as I've moved from focused on more on mixing and thinking more about selection and the kinds of songs that work in the right moment, like that's an example of a song that I feel like works really well. You can do it in an early set. You can do it top of the night. You can do it at the back end, you know, toward the end of the evening. It just it works so well across the board. And so I think when I'm listening to songs out of my library and I'm trying to find stuff for set, I'm looking for those songs that that, that just have that kind of versatility and utility. And so that would be the other way to answer your question. That's really awesome. And I, I couldn't help but notice that there is um, a very familiar uh, that that piano riff. Um, I should probably know this, but I, I'm not too sure about. Could, could you tell me a little bit about that? Um, that that I guess that. Not, the, not only the rhythm, but the actual harmony, that the way that all those instruments are working together with the piano and the bass. Is, there a, is that a specific, um, s- s- I guess, uh, other than a genre? What is, what, what would, how would you describe that? Well, so in, me keep, let me just qualify. I am absolutely, I would not describe myself as, a, as an expert in the least around you know, Afro-Cuban or Latin music. Uh, I'm a big fan. So to that extent, but um, I mean, my understanding of it is that the, the way in which that piano opens, right, that kind of the, the riff of it, right, because it loops itself um, is what's known as a montuno, right? This comes from like Afro-Cuban um, musical traditions. Montunos don't have to be piano. You can do it, you know, on a on a bass, for example, would be also common. But especially in a lot of Afro-Cuban music that montuno is oftentimes played on the keyboards. It's used to open a song. It establishes the rhythm. It establishes a groove, right? As you can hear, um, and it becomes like this foundation by which the rest of the band is able to come in and begin adding other things. So you have the percussion coming in on clave. You know, you might have horns, bass lines. Uh, you know, whatever instrumentation is there. But 
because Afro-Cuban music is, you know, at its heart, so much of it is meant to be dance music. So the, the point of having that riff is to get people into like a rhythmic mode, if you will. And, you know, they're very, as we know from hip hop, right? There are a few better ways to do it than to loop up a really infectious rhythm. And, you know, Afro-Cuban musicians certainly, and obviously not just them, but they certainly figured this out, you know, in an analog age of playing instruments. Like how do you create a rhythm that is infectious, that is going to get people to want to dance? And that's that that Afro-Cuban style is just incredibly, incredibly effective. Um, I guess the other thing I would add is that style and where Boogaloo drew it from was very common with a specific Cuban subgenre known as our, our dance or music style known as the Wahira. So a lot of like early 60s Wahira music. So before um, Boogaloo emerges in the mid 60s, you could actually hear a lot of the kind of predecessors to this in like Wahiras. Um, in addition to like mambos and cha-cha-chas, you know, son montunos, like Boogaloo incorporated a lot of these other earlier styles. Though I would, I've always felt like the Wahira was one of the key ones because Wahiras oftentimes open with that kind of montuno riff. But, you know, if someone out there, again, is a much better expert in Afro-Cuban music than I, they, they could completely come into the chat and be like, well, actually, Oliver got all of this wrong and, and break it down instead because I, I definitely do not call myself, you know, an expert in these things. No, I think that's that's really helpful, and I really enjoyed that. The, I guess the thing that I can at, at first, uh, uh, when hearing that, the first thing that came to my my mind was that that sounds a lot like uh, "Spill the Wine" by what by War and Eric Burden, and sure. they most likely right. just lifted that from them. Most what I, what I'd assume. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, after the the moment at which Afro Cuban music crosses into American pop mainstream, I mean, begins really as early as the fifties and sixties, and so you see it in jazz, you see it in R and B, you see it in rock and pop music, um, and so yeah, it, you know, a group like War, you know, the 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 thing about War is they're out of Long Beach. They were primarily, though not exclusively, um, African-American, but a lot of their musical styles were very much influenced by sort of Afro-Cuban traditions. And that's you, you see this happen with a lot of different groups. And so there's definitely this crossover moment that happens in the 60s and 70s where more and more American pop bands, or just not pop bands specifically, but just American art, musical artists are incorporating stuff that they're hearing coming out of like the Afro-Cuban tradition and finding ways of integrating it into their stuff. So yeah, Spill the Wine's a great example. I mean, one of my other favorite examples is from Stevie Wonder, um, Don't You Worry About a Thing. Oh, I yeah. mean, if you play that song, that opens with a, it opens with a Montuno. Like it is so clear as day that he's, I mean, he even talks about, you know, like, I can speak Spanish. So, I mean, Stevie knows what he's doing. He's riffing on Afro-Cuban music, but in a very Stevie way. Um, don't worry, Don't You Worry About a Thing another perfect bridge song because you can kind of drop it in and go from like a soul set into a Latin set or from a Latin set into a soul set. Um, you know, that's another perfect bridge song to me. Oh, that's so cool, man. Yeah. I, I, now, of course, of course, you know, I mean, yeah, I totally hear it. Um, so um, I'm going to pivot again to, um, to something else that I really want to talk to you about. And one of the, one of the main kind of discussion points that we wanted to, we wanted to cover today. Um, and that is about your, um, your book, Legions of Boom, which mm. we can see here. This is a bit of a lo-fi uh, pic picture of it. But yeah, this is a, an incredibly important important book um, and an incredi incredibly important documentation um, of the mobile DJ crew sound um, and DJ culture from San Francisco. Um, I guess the question I have for you um, 
is, uh, you know, what was your initial inspiration for writing about this, this subject? So I moved to the Bay Area from L.A. in 1990, just around the time within the first, you know, within the first two years or so of me you know, getting up there, uh, DJs from the Bay Area, specifically Filipino-American DJs from the area like Hubert, Mixmaster Mike, and Apollo were now becoming very dominant in first the national and then global um, competitive DJing scene. So specifically, I'm talking about things like the D, or very specifically, I'm talking about like the DMC competition. Um, though I guess that would be redundant because the C and DMC is competition. So yeah, the DMC, right, was the main kind of DJ competition at the time. And, um, you know, quite famously, if I have my years right, Hubert entered in 1991 and more or less came out of nowhere. Um, at the time, most of the DJ, the prominent DJs out of the U.S. were either out of Philly or New York, um, maybe out of L.A. I think Aladdin was, was at least a U.S. champion at some point, maybe in the 80s. But the Bay Area was not on this map at all. So he came through and completely blew away the competition in the U.S., went to Worlds, and came in number two. A lot of people thought he should have won. And the next year, him, Apollo, and Mike come back and win it as a group i think they were called at the time they were the rock steady djs and then Hubert and mike come back the year after that that was now either 93 94 they successfully defend their title and is is quite like well known as a story the dmc's organizers approach them and say would the two of you mind um retiring because your involvement in the competition is too intimidating to the rest of the field and so they agreed that they would stop competing uh, in the DMC uh, because of that request. So all of this was happening while I was living in the Bay Area and I was reading about their exploits in local newspapers and in magazines. And I mean, I'm not Filipino, but I am Asian American and they're also Asian American. And so there's a natural kind of curiosity in terms of like what's going on with all of these Filip world-class DJs, Filipino-American DJs coming out of the Bay Area. And so when I... Um, started as a music writer, uh, you know, by the mid late nineties, I got to interview these guys and the, you know, common question I would ask them is how did you get your start? And every single one of them had a very similar answer, which is that before I got interested in scratching, I don't know if the term turntablism had even really proliferated at that point, but you know, before you got interested in scratching and turntablism, like how did you get into DJ? And all of them had the same answer, which was that well, when I was in high school, I was in a mobile DJ group and we would do school dances and we would do weddings and we would do debuts and birthday parties. And I had read about the scratch DJing scene because this was, you know, this was something that was on television. It was something that was being reported, you know, like the herb DJ issue that, that you showed earlier, right? Magazines like The Source were, were, were writing about this. So it wasn't hard to learn much about the history of the scratch community. I had never seen a single thing written about the Filipino um, mobile DJ community that existed in the 1980s. Um, I later found out there was at least one article that had been written by um, David, David D. Cook. Um, so shout out to Dave because he was way ahead of his time. But as far as I know, he was the only person at that time period who had ever written anything about this massive scene that involved at least over a hundred different crews, DJ crews, um, all staffed by high school aged you know, Filipino-American teenagers all across the Bay Area, San Francisco, Daly City, Vallejo, San Jose, Union City, Fremont, you know, so forth and so on. Um, and 
the more I would hear these stories about what the mobile scene was like, right? All these garage parties and school parties and church hall parties, et cetera, as both a journalist, but also as a, by this point, a graduate student who needed a dissertation topic, right? This light goes up over my head, which is like, well, no one's written about this. No one's really studied it. I need something to write about. I need something to study. Like, why don't I make this the focus of my dissertation? Um, you know, my my advisor at the time, Michael Omi, who's a really well-known sociologist at, at Berkeley, he looked over my original dissertation proposal and the original proposal was was way too ambitious because of the, the whole dissertation was going to be a history of Asian Americans and popular music. And the Filipino American uh, DJ scene was one chapter within it. And Michael looked this over and it's like, okay, this is great. It's way too ambitious. You, you shouldn't you shouldn't try to do all of this. You should take one of these chapters and make that your dissertation. And he and he said, personally, I think this Filipino American DJ chapter is really fascinating. Maybe you should consider that. And I'm like, oh, well, sure, why not? Um, and that decision, right? That upon his his goading, I turned that into my dissertation, and that's eventually what led to the book Legions of Boom. That's awesome. It is. It's such a it's such a turning point for for me as well as as an individual. Like I um, yeah, I think about that was like the first those those specific DJs were the ones that were like, oh, okay, this is something that I'm really interested in. It was a yeah incredible incredible moment for DJ culture and music culture in the world. Um, so, you know, what was the research like for this book? Was there any highlights like that you can remember from the conversations that you had putting together? I mean, the whole thing was really amazing. Um, you know, I think for a, a, like a lot of people who do the kind of research where you're that it's primarily interview based, whether it's oral histories or ethnographies, you know, the the most enjoyment you get from it is the collection of it, which is to say you're just talking with people. And so, and the thing about the interviews that I was doing was even though I did interview people like Cubert and like Apollo. So the people who became, you know, much more famous in the 1990s as scratch DJs and turntablists, most of the people I interviewed were not people who were remotely household names outside of their own local community. Um, you know, so, you know, Anthony Carrion from uh, Unlimited Sounds, you know, Jeannie G. Well, actually, some people knew Jeannie G because he was on the he was on the radio in the 90s, but you know, from Ultimate Creations. Like these were not again, these were not household names in the same way that like a Qbert or a Mixmaster Mike would become household names. So for most of them, they had never been interviewed about their DJ history at all. And I mean, that's one of the first things they would tell me is we would sit down and, and have these interviews, and they'd be like, they would be, they would say stuff like, you know, no one has ever asked me about what happened, you know, what did, what did I do in the 80s when I was a high school student? And just hearing these stories about what, again, it's it'd be slightly different if these were people who had been, let's say, in their, their early 20s, but these were like 13, 14, 15-year-olds who went out and learned how to DJ. I mean, they couldn't watch a video. YouTube didn't exist, right? They taught each other. They learned in, in you know, they learned in their bedrooms. Um, they cut their teeth doing countless garage parties or convincing the principal at their high school that them as like sophomores, that they should be allowed to DJ like the winter formal. I mean, these were amazing stories about very, you know, relatively young people doing these extraordinary things. And I thought, you know, it made me obviously think back to like, what was I doing when I was 14, 15? It was nothing like that. Like I didn't have their skill set. I didn't have their moxie to go out and to compete and to get gigs. So I was just completely, you know, every person I interviewed just added another facet to this larger story. And it was just so remarkable. I mean, I, I, the, the, 
even today, all these years later, it's been 20 years or roughly about 20 years since I started uh, doing the interviews. And just thinking about it now, even two decades later, I mean, it's a it's a remarkable story. Um, and in a lot of ways, and I think I, I mentioned this in the book, there are, I think, notable parallels to sort of the Filipino-American mobile scene. And when you hear about like how the early um, hip hop scene got developed in the South Bronx, because that was also dominated by DJ crews, right? Mostly like sound system DJs like Herc, Grandmaster Flash, you know, Bambada, et cetera. Very, very similar stories. And the main difference is that hip hop went on to become the biggest, you know, most important form of youth culture in the world. The Filipino American mobile scene just stayed in the Bay Area. It lasted for a fairly long amount of time, I mean, roughly 10 to 15 years, depending on when you peg the, the, its end. Um, but it had very little exposure outside of that community. Um, and I do wonder what would have happened if things like YouTube or Mixcloud or whatever else had existed back then, because it would have allowed people to have a window into these incredible things and parties that these young people were throwing. But because those things, those tools didn't exist, it really only exists within the collective memory of the people who participated in it. Um, and, but for that reason, as a researcher and as a journalist or writer, or whatever, you know, I'm going in and I'm, I got to be one of the first uh, people from outside of this community to hear these stories, which was a privilege into itself. Um, and like I said, they're just amazing stories. Absolutely. And I think even, um, you know, following on from that, one of the greatest things as being a fan of, you know, Mixed Master Mike, the Invisible Scratch Pickles uh, shortcut and so forth, was that they made, and Yoga Frog, and I think like Thud Rumble, shout out Thud Rumble and, and you know, for creating such a volume of, uh, you know, accessibility, you know, through VHS tapes, through the internet. They really, I felt right. like, uh, especially that crew, you know, really embraced technology and a way of, mm -hmm. you know, this is all pre, you know, Twitch live streaming, but they were figuring out ways <laughs> right. to get it to us, you know, um, you know, on VHS or whatever, DVD or every, any way you could, you know, uh, right. that was how we all learned. I think that is, they are the fathers to so many of our styles because of that, you know, um, right. And yeah, largely ignored otherwise, right. It was a super niche subculture that if you knew, you know, about it and you got it from the local record store, or you knew somebody who imported them in, you know, it was like right. scoring gold. Right. Right. And I should add, I mean, you hear very similar stories from other places as well. I mean, L.A. had its own kind of mobile scene. I'm sure that this existed in cities like Chicago and Detroit and New York. I mean, any place that you have a large metropolitan area that is that has a, a critical mass of young people, especially at this age in which all of these dance styles. So coming out of the disco era into like electro and funk and, of course, it went in, 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 sorry, late era funk, um, early electro, early hip hop, uh, house music, techno music. I mean, these are all. DJ centered music styles that cross over from being sub subcultures regionally to becoming globally dominant over the course of roughly a decade or so in the eighties and nineties. Um, and so I think the Filipino American mobile DJ story is, is again, it's one facet of that, but I think in a large way, because they were Filipino, they were part of an ethnic group that a lot of people outside of it have, you know, then and now have very little awareness of you know, that is partly why they, their accomplishments and their, um, the success and the spread and popularity of their scene, it just didn't map beyond the community. So as big as it was in the community, again, no one outside of it was aware of it. And I purposely, you know, sought out, I went and talked to one of the people who founded, um, or was heavily involved with Megatone 
So, you know, and it really super important San Francisco dance music label that Sylvester was associated with. And, you know, I asked, and, and you know, Megatone would have been, their, their releases would have been the kind of music that these DJs were playing at their parties. And I basically asked him, like, were you aware that there were like these thousands of Filipino kids playing your music um, in your backyard, right? And he's like, no, didn't know about it at all. Um, I even interviewed Filipino-American journalists from that era and said, did you ever write an article about this this massive subculture happening within your own community? And they're like, no, didn't know about it. Um, and which is crazy when you think about it from like a 2021 perspective, because any little thing that catches fire, it's, you know, it's instantly on TikTok or it's instantly on YouTube or some other platform in which it just draws eyes and then people get to learn about it. And in this case, because of who they were, because of their age, because of a lot of other factors, right? Outside of that community, this scene basically was invisible to them. Um, and which partly allowed it to kind of flourish with its own rules in a sense, like they weren't beholden to sort of others trying to come in and, and tell them how to do things. But on the flip side of it, it meant that like they just never had the kind of exposure or larger longevity that something like, you know, a techno scene or a house scene, again, these were regional, these were all regional DJ centered music styles or musical practices, at least that were able to then translate into something that became globally influential. And that just, that didn't happen for, for the Filipino American mobile DJ scene. And I do think that race and ethnicity absolutely played partly a role in that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're completely, I think you're completely right. Um, but but what were the ingredients that kind of made this location specifically a boiling pot of culture like this? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, specifically within the community that I write about in the book, I mean, the big thing is that you have both a critical mass of Filipino-American families uh, settling the area. So you have a population base. And specifically because they, you know, they're an immigrant community. And so they have a vested interest in staying in contact with one another right so you're constantly talking to your you know your relatives your cousins 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 you know is a common joke um you stay in touch with one another through um you know catholic church organizations because not all but you know many filipinos are, are catholic and so they go to church they meet each other they see each other there there are filipino student clubs there are these kind of provincial organizations. So if you come from specific parts of the Philippines, because it's an incredibly diverse country, right? All the thousands of islands and different languages and cultures and religions, you come over to the States as immigrants, you form these groups so that you can stay in touch with people who come from your same province, right? So you have all of these different organizational and social networks. I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm just talking about literally networking people socially that become incredibly useful when you have these DJ crews I mean, how a DJ is successful is you need gigs and having these networks meant that if you were trying to drum up business, you know, your friends or your family could get on the horn and figure out, well, whose birthdays are coming up, who's getting married, who's going to be graduating, right? Um, you know, who's running the Filipino student groups within like the local Catholic church or local community college or high schools. So they were able to get all of these forms of business and circulate it within the community because of you have this very tight-knit immigrant community with these constant communication lines. I mean, this is, of course, a very sociological way to, to, to look at it, but 
like I'm a sociologist, right? Um, you know, an anthropologist might look at kind of like the legacies of, I don't know, Spanish colonialism or whatnot. Maybe valid. Didn't really come up in my interviews. What, what people talked about was they talked about their families and how their moms and dads and aunts and uncles would hook them up with gigs and how important having that family support was to be able to allow them to go out and drum up business and therefore invest um, in better equipment and buy more records and better speakers and lighting systems. And then that raised their stature. And, you know, in the DJ community, right, it's super competitive. It's an arms race. So when you see one other DJ, or in this case, another crew, if they've upgraded their lights, well, then you got to go and upgrade your lights too. You got to upgrade your speakers. You need to get in new mixers. You need to get new records and better records. And so because of this, you have all this competition that is helping the, you know, the, the scene level up with every passing year. Um, and that, that competitive spirit then I think translates really well into like the younger members of this scene, your Cuberts, your Mikes, your Apollos, your shortcuts, uh, et cetera, because they learn how to be competitive and compete with each other, which of course then translates incredibly well once scratching and turntablism take off in the nineties. Like that, that's just innovation, right? Com the competition creates innovation. So um, yeah, this is, this is cool. Just so everyone who's watching right now knows what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about um, a book that Oliver has written um, called Legions of Boom. And if the mods don't mind just posting that link in the, in the chat again so people can get it. It's a, a really good a recommended read about the history of the Filipino-American DJ culture, uh, mainly from the Bay Area um, and, yeah. and the rise of, of DJ culture and its influence on popular culture as a whole it's fascinating um and it's obviously very explicitly tied uh intim intimately tied to yeah everything that we do at serato what serato is all about um and so this is a really fantastic um yeah tie-in it's it's asian pacific american american uh, asian pacific heritage month uh for canada and america so it's great that we're talking about this right now for this month um i have a question for you about this um the the, the sound systems the mobile djs um, did you ever get a chance to experience the mobile DJ era in the 80s or 90s in your time? No, because by the time, I mean, I moved up to the Bay Area early enough that if I had known about it and if I'd had the interest, yeah, I could have been at some of those parties, especially the big kind of showcase parties that were happening at the time. But by the time I, I knew about the existence of this, this was like 2000, 2001, and the scene had at that point been over for somewhere between five to 10 years, depending on who you talk to. So I never got to experience it directly, though um, you know, the DJs who were in Triple Threat, which was uh, Shortcut, Apollo, and Vinrock, they actually, before I, I moved back down to LA uh, around 2006, they actually threw a tribute to the mobiles party in which they got out the old school lighting systems, they got a fog machine, um, and everything was set up, right, musically speaking, to be like an old school party with one important exception, which is that nobody brought records, everyone brought hard drives because they were all using Serato. Um, so, I mean, this is like 2005, 2006. I mean, digital DJing had already basically effectively revolutionized DJing by that point. Um, and that was the one kind of new school difference, even though like the lighting and the fog machine and everything else was supposed to be like an old school hall, hall party, like no one's toting, you know, four milk crates of records to the gig because we all have gotten old and we got hernias and it's just easier to bring, a, you know, a, a hard drive and, and, and do your set that way. Totally. 
that's great um, shout out Vinrock uh, Apollo and Shortcut uh, Triple Threat DJs for making one of the greatest mixtapes uh, well Vinrock specifically for the Reconstruction uh, oh yeah mixtape that's one of my favorites and then Shortcut I know he did the the, the Dancehall series I'm pretty sure he did that one under yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. um and uh, so specifically on the mobile DJ uh, scene, I think, you know, uh, it's really good to talk about this as well. One of the crews that you talk about in the, in, in the book, uh, Spintronics, they actually have their own documentary on YouTube. Um, I'm mm-hmm. keen to hear your take on Spintronics in particular and, and the impact, impact they had within that scene. Yeah, I mean, Spintronics are, are they're legendary. Um, they're a crew out of Daly City. Uh, specifically, they got their start at Westmore High School in Daly City, which is a public high school there. And really what's notable about them, I mean, they were certainly one of the major players, uh, I would say, at kind of the height of the scene in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 1980s. But the other really notable thing about them is that they are still around. Like, if you need someone to DJ your wedding or a dance or whatever, like, you can hire Spintronics. So they've been around now for 36 years, I want to say. And that's remarkable. Um, I mean, there are still... DJs that I interviewed who had gotten their start in the 80s who are still DJing on some level. But Spintronics is one of the very few crews that I interviewed whose members still were running a functional mobile crew. Um, I mean, I mean, a lot of them have like other day jobs, so it's not like they're full-time uh, work necessarily. But just the fact that like they have survived for over three decades is just remarkable. Um, and if you watch that documentary that you're mentioning, I think it's called Spintronics Generations. I mean, you'll hear people like Qbert and and others basically say like Spintronics was the best mobile crew around. Now, I wasn't there to to be able to provide my own opinion. Um, my guess is, and I don't want to put words into any anyone's mouth from Spintronics. I bet if you were to ask them, they might actually say the best crew that they grew up around was Ultimate Creations, which was a San Francisco crew. Um, and ultimate creations was the kind of a very common name that came up when people were talking about like who were like the main innovators the, or the, the, the crews that, you know, were at, were at the pinnacle that everyone else was trying to, trying to, you know, get up to their level. Um, so I think Spintronics served that function for maybe like a, a later, like later generations of mobile crews that followed. But in the early eighties, early to mid eighties, like ultimate creations were like godly to a lot of people. Again, just based on my interviews at least. That's so cool. Um, I saw in the chat, uh, Proof has uh, put in that Scotty Fox is Spintronics, and Scotty's actually spinning on Twitch. So if we can, let's give uh, Scotty Fox a shout out. Uh, yeah, shout out to Scotty. <laughs> get that link in the chat. Um, that's so cool, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I spoke to uh, Shortcut and, and Mike Realm about being from the Bay Area and the high concentration of incredible DJs. Um, I think you're kind of alluding to it, but you know, what, what do you, what would you say is the reason for this specifically? Well, I mean, I think one thing that can't be discounted, um, is that when you see someone, in other words, well, let me, let me kind of back this up. I don't think there's anything necessarily, you know, intrinsic or inherent within Filipino American culture that explains it. And again, I'm not an anthropologist, maybe someone who is would, would, would debate this point with me. What I saw happening, you know, again, based on my research and my interviews, is that you had a small group of people beginning with um, Sound Explosion, which was the first Filipino-American crew that I could find out of the Bay Area. Um, They started out of, um, in San Francisco, out of Balboa High School, same high school that Hubert went to, not coincidentally. And they started in 1979. 
and they would go out and they would do dances, you know, at the school, they would do parties in, in their neighborhood. And so other people who went to their same high school or who grew up in this, their same neighborhood would see sound explosion, right? This crew of Filipino guys, Filipino American guys doing, you know, doing these gigs, you know, getting paid, having hundreds of people turn out to their parties. And they just thought, well, geez, I mean, this is kind of similar to what I was talking about with how I got into writing is because I, I met Jeff Chang and I'm like, well, he's Chinese American. I'm Chinese American. If he can write about this stuff, then that probably means I can too. And what sound explosion did was to plant the very, very basic, but incredibly profoundly important idea that if you're Filipino American and you look like me and you come from my high school or you come from my same neighborhood, you can be a DJ too. You can start your own crew. And that is exactly what happened. That same high school, Balboa High School, by 1980, 81, had at least, at least four more crews get started. And if you ask, because I did, you ask the members of those crews, well, what gave you the idea to become a DJ, to start up a DJ group? Every single one of them will say, well, we saw sound explosion, you know, DJing our, our school dance. And we figured, well, if they can do it, like, why can't we do it as well? And so... I'm not saying that there are, I mean, I, I was alluding to earlier the fact that the Filipino American community in particular, close knit, strong communication ties, right? Those things matter immensely. And yes, that's cultural to a certain extent, but I don't think there's something like inherently culturally programmed, you know, within Filipino Americans that make them better DJs than any other like community. What, what you had is you had a group of pioneers who went out and they planted this idea that if you look like us or you come from our background, you can do this too. And then the benefit of having that close-knit immigrant social network meant that if you were to become a DJ, you had ways of making money. You could have ways of getting gigs, which allowed the scene to flourish. But I think ultimately it begins with that moment of recognition, what I describe in the book as a light bulb moment, because it's sort of like that metaphor, right? You see someone who looks like you doing something that you never considered that you never thought that you could do. It, it never even occurred to you. But the minute you see that person doing it, you're like, well, damn. Well, if they can do it, that means I can do it too. And I think that more than anything, right, explains not just with DJing. I think it explains many different, right, cultural phenomenon and movements that we have. It begins with, if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, and hopefully that's not an overly simplistic answer, but I think it's the most important way of explaining at least how does this stuff kick off? And I think it has to do with people seeing people who look like them do something that they had never considered possible and realize, well, then it is possible because I can, I can, I can witness it. And then therefore that gives me the idea, the inspiration that I can pursue this as well. I think that's absolutely 100% the fact, you know, and I think that spreads, it's, it's, it's definitely so, so much more important for, for, um, you know, people that don't have as much representation in, in popular culture. Um, you know, even for right. me, like, I'm obviously not one of those people, but, you know, seeing someone like A-Track, I spoke specifically to him about that. He's a Canadian and he did well at DJ and I thought I could do it. Um, you know, yeah, obviously absolutely. that plays itself out on so, in so many ways throughout everything. Um, and yeah, like you said, movies, TV, music, sports, I mean, you name it, writing, journalism, right. academia, it's yeah, a hundred percent. That's yeah, that's so cool. And, and yeah, the Bay Area does happen to have just some of the most amazing DJs in the world. So uh, right. thank you to those I mean, I pioneers. Think, right. I think the larger question of like, why does the Bay Area in particular have so many DJs? And I, I remember hearing this at some point, like in the early 2000s, that per capita, 
the Bay Area has more DJs than any other metropolitan area in the United States. Now, I have no idea if that's in fact true. I'm completely willing to believe it simply just based on my personal experiences meeting all these DJs. And I think a lot of it has to do with, again, it's it's a big enough metropolitan area that you have like a critical mass of people who can be interested in it. Um, you know, the Bay Area has, has historically has had a music industry. I mean, it's nowhere near the size of LA or New York, but you do have enough of a music industry there that helps to, especially through radio and labels to help propel things along. Um, you know, the Bay Area has had historically like great record stores. So you have points of access um, and, you know, and, and a really important nightclub scene that was also very much influenced and driven by the, like the historical existence of, um, you know, a queer gay population that were fundamental in shaping the nightclub scene um, in the Bay Area in the 70s, especially in the 1980s. And so I think all of these things combined, right, creates these social conditions in which you can have a really robust DJ scene get started. But I think part of the point I was also making earlier is there's a snowball effect where you might have two similar cities, you know, demographically or whatever else, socioeconomically. But if one has a tipping point in which you have enough people who get interested in, in an activity like DJing, that just creates a whole other momentum into itself. Because when you see every other person around you as a DJ, then this might plant in your head like, oh, maybe this is something I should pursue as well. So I think the Bay Area at some point, it hit this tipping point that helped to produce even more DJs that then could plug into like this existing kind of social cultural infrastructure of record stores and radio stations and everything else, nightclubs, et cetera, that allowed them to become DJs and, and to, to find success doing that. Yeah, and we also can't, we cannot forget the incredible amount of uh, African-American musicians that have had such an impact on musical culture from Oakland and the Bay Area as well. It's just oh, yeah, right. You, so music about rich. Tower Power, right, Graham Central Station, um, I mean, Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, yeah, I mean, these are all incredibly powerful and influential um, artists who have colored, right, and I mean that in both, like, figurative and, and, and literal ways, right, but they have, um, well, maybe not literal ways, but they've, they've colored our perception of the Bay Area music scene in a way that people feel like they're connecting to a longer tradition because they are they are playing like Sylvester records when they're out DJing, for example. They're playing Sly and the Family Stone or they're playing Tower of Power. Um, you know, or, and to say nothing of like MC Hammer, Digital Underground, you know, Rest in Peace of Shock G, um, you know, all these, you know, the Souls of Mischief and the whole Hyro crew that, that got started at the time that I was leaving the Bay Area. So the, the Bay Area is just musical roots in general really heavily contributed and were synergistic in that sense with the expansion of the DJ scene as well. So I'm going to bring it back to the, the mobile DJs. Um, so, <laughs> something that I think is, is really interesting, especially, especially for me and this music industry on the, on the side of, you know, uh, you know, Serato being a, a music company, we work with a lot of DJs, obviously. Um, do you think there's at all any kind of uh, divide between mobile DJs, turntablists, touring DJs? You know, is there any tension there? Um, I suppose there's probably some. In Insofar as, you know this is going to be a very sociological concept to, to share here, but like, you know, one of the fundamental ways in which sociology talks about how um, human beings organize themselves socially into groups. It's what's known as an in-group, out-group group dynamic. Whereas you identify your in-group as like, that is the people that you, you identify with, right? They're your, your crew in a sense. 
outgroup is everyone else. And you tend to view the outgroup with more suspicion, with more distrust, because they're not part of your in-group. So I think to that extent, like if you are a particular kind of DJ, you identify as being like a mobile DJ as opposed to a club DJ, as opposed to like whatever other kind of DJ. Yeah, there's going to be some level of identification, trust and mistrust that plays. That's, But I mean, that exists in every single facet of like any kind of social um, scenario. So it's not unique to DJing. Um, I mean, my impression, and this could be completely wrong, is I certainly think there's probably less of that now. And I think partly it's because to be a good DJ, you got to hustle, right? And to be a good hustler, you have to be as adept to fitting into as many different spaces and kinds of venues and kinds of opportunities as you can. So a purist might say, you know, I'm never going to take a corporate gig, for example. Um, but if you want to be, you want to make a living doing this, then you'll take what, you know, you'll take those corporate gigs in addition to like the nightclub gigs, in addition to like the underground club gigs, I mean, whatever it happens to be. Um, so I don't get the sense that there's like a lot of boundary drawing that happens outside of what you would just naturally expect from any kind of large, diverse community of practitioners. Um, but I, I mean, again, you would probably be in a much better position than I to talk about whether or not, um, you know, there, there's kind of like this interscene DJ warfare. <laughs> I do think what's really what's really interesting to me, and what, what really surprised me, since we we're talking a little bit about the influence of Serato and and digital DJing, is I was always curious if the people that I'd interviewed, because they all got started, you know, spinning analog vinyl records, what their attitude towards digital DJing would be. And I think my I my impression was that they would be hostile to it because it's not the format that they started with. They would be traditionalists. And I could not have been more wrong by and large, like the people that I interviewed. So these were DJs who got their start in the eighties, but the ones who are still DJing, they, they embraced digital DJing tools, whether they were CDJs, whether they were kind of DVS systems, they embraced it wholesale because, and what the thing that I forgot, because when I'm, I was thinking about this as a record collector, in which case like the physical, right? Analog vinyl, that's important. I wasn't thinking about this enough as a DJ. You know, a DJ, they see their equipment as tools, right? The creativity, the execution, that all comes from here. What you're working with, those are just tools to take your creativity and then bring it over to an audience. So if your best mixing is going to be done through, you know, using CDJs, then you're going to use CDJs. Like the audience doesn't care. I mean, maybe some audiences care, but for the, by and large, they don't know what equipment people are using. So it doesn't, to them, it, it doesn't really matter. And because of the compatibility between things like first final scratch and then Serato, because it was so familiar, because you're still using vinyl records, you're still using your turntables and your mixer, they completely embraced the possibilities. As I was saying earlier, because you don't need to bring 500 records with you to the club every weekend and break your back doing it. You can just bring a, you know, a thumb drive and you're good to go um, or bring your laptop and you're good to go. Um, it just, it was a great tool and it made DJing easier from a physical, like literally a physical point of view, it made it easier and it expanded, you know, having cue points, having effects at your fingertips. It just expanded the creative potential from it. Um, and so it's very rare that I've run into DJs like working. I, in fact, I don't know if I've ever met a working DJ that has a problem with digital DJ tools. They all use it for the most part because of the utility of it. 
And because ultimately it has nothing to do with their creative possibilities, right? It just has to do with like, it's just a different set of tools, a newer set of tools that make the work that they do or their creative impulses that allows those things to come to fruition. Um, I mean, there might've been a point like in the late nineties and early OOs, you know, back when the, the term microwave DJs, you know, you know, you know, uh, was being circulated out there. I think DJ premier was one of the main people who were, he was kind of going after like a lot of digital DJs, but then you watch a couple years after that, you watch like the BET cipher videos where premier is the, the DJ and he's using Serato. So even he, right. The person who was mocking digital DJs as being microwave DJs, he came around to it and he probably came around to it because he realized this doesn't fundamentally change who I am as a DJ. It's just the tool changes, but I'm still the same DJ premiere that I was when I was just using, you know, analog vinyl records, me using Serato doesn't change. I, it doesn't make me DJ premiere different. Like I'm still primo, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of DJs came to that same realization. So I think that again, the technological changes, I don't think have really created different factions. I mean, there was probably more tension between like people who just didn't like CDJs, which I kind of get because that doesn't feel the same. But I, I've, I really have very rarely met people who are like, yeah, I won't mess with Serato or any of the kind of competing DBS, um, you know, options out there. They all are like, yeah, if it works for me as a DJ, you know, live and let live. Great. Yeah, actually, you, you, you wrote a really great article that I, I read you sent me about it. I was really interested in that. And I'm going to share it with the Serato HQ. It's it's really cool just talking about that that time, um, especially the way you've kind of you've, you've assembled it and put it together. It's a fantastic article. Um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. I wanted to jump back into, um, you know, something you were talking about earlier about representation. And, and I wanted to ask, you know, like how how, how important was it to you to see other Amer Asian Americans, uh, specifically DJs, succeed? to you oh i mean hugely important i mean i probably wouldn't be sitting here in this room if not for some you know having that exposure um and having seen the examples of all the people that we've been talking about um because at the very least it meant that there was a space here that i could belong to in a sense um you know as a dj or as a writer or as a scholar i mean all the things that i'm i'm interested in there have been like these role models that have demonstrated what's possible to me. And so that I'm able to kind of follow in their footsteps and then take things into other directions and hopefully be at risk of sounding pretentious, but like hopefully being an example that other people can look to and be like, well, if Oliver can do it, then that means that I can do these things too. Whether it's being, you know, a professor or a DJ or a record collector or a writer, I mean, whatever we're talking about here. Yeah. And I think that's kind of part of the trajectory, right. Of, of, uh, the life of, maturity as well you know i think you you want to be an example or a role model for for people as you get older would, would you say that's correct? right oh yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know in terms of issues of representation in a broader way like we're talking about mass media you know i certainly i did not grow up you know again i was born in the early 70s so i grew up in the 70s and 80s and i did not grow up in a time in which people who look like me were very frequently shown on television or in the movies and if they were um you know those depictions were oftentimes highly stereotypical problematic as the young people would say and you know i have a daughter who's 16 and you know i can see through her experiences how vastly different the landscape is has been like for her um she has never grown up with in a mass media environment in which she doesn't see people like her um being represented in one way or another i'm not saying it's like all fair and equal now i mean there's still a lot of progress that is yet to be made but there's not the same kind of scarcity um, that compared to like, 
again, seventies babies like myself. Um, and so I think for that, like her, I, I can only imagine how that might expand her imagination of like what might be possible for her is because she can look around and see other, you know, Asian American kids doing all sorts of different things that I simply never had an awareness about. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to have that perspective though, of, of the, you know, the time of, in your lifetime to see some change, whether, you know, hopefully that has been positive, but is there, you know, yeah. are, there, are there any um, um, specifically Asian American DJs that you wanted to, you know, shine a light on that were really particularly instrumental to you um i mean you know i think certainly i mean practically everyone i interviewed were uh, for reasons that i said earlier were just incredibly inspirational and in learning more about you know the stuff that they did um as teenagers i mean that, that like i said that still just blows my mind um i would say i mean the other two names that come to mind beyond them um, I mean, this person is an Asian American. He's 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 a he's Chinese, like mainland Chinese Chinese um, from Shanghai. Gary Wang, uh, aka DJ DJ Vnets. I guess Gary Wong. He's actually the same surname as me, so it should be Wong. Um, he was the he was the first DMC. He was the China's first DMC champion. So when China began to uh, bring in um, contestants into the the international stage, the his he was the first uh, national champion. Um, and Gary is actually the, the person who first introduced me to digital DJing software, which blew my mind. Um, though I didn't have any sense of how big it would get. This would have been, this was in the year of year 2000, winter of 2000. Um, and then Gary has gone on to run, uh, he ran a very successful party night called, um, shelter in both Shanghai and Beijing. And more recently he's been opening up, uh, sort of Tokyo style vinyl bars in both Beijing and um, Shanghai called Root Down. And for a lot of reasons, I mean, for pandemic reasons, I haven't been able to visit out there, but I'm dying to see what he's done with those because um, he's such a vinyl head. So Gary, I, he comes to mind. And the other person uh, is actually a former student of mine who has since become a very, very good friend, occasional wedding DJ partner, uh, Patrick Huang, DJ Fatrick. Um, he DJed uh, with, who uh, was a tour DJ and, and studio DJ for Native Tongue, uh, sorry, Native Guns, I should say, uh, and still uh, works a lot with uh, with Bamboo, uh, the MC out of the West Coast. And Patrick to me is like, I mean, he's not quite 10 years younger. I think it's like maybe seven or eight years younger than me. But he, to me, has really perfected how to blend turntableist skills, but with like a party rock mix style. And so I love just watching him work because he mixes incredibly well and he uses just the right amount of sort of turntableist techniques to kind of spice it up, but without like going overboard. Like he's not beat juggling in the middle of like a party set, but he still knows how to very tastefully like integrate stuff in the way that like the beat junkies and triple threat DJs. I mean, these are, these are kind of the, the real masters at this art. But like, because I, I do gig with, with uh, Patrick on occasion, like I actually look up to him a lot. He's younger than me. Like I said, he used to be my student when I was a grad student at Berkeley. But I think Patrick is just one of my favorite DJs because he's so clean in the mix. He's got like great taste um, and so forth and so on. So, yeah. yeah. I love that balance of uh, of the party rocking. That, that's definitely like uh, the triple threat. That was definitely my blueprint as well for, for that. Um, so I just need to see the thing is I was never a great scratcher. And honestly, before the pandemic, I had given serious consideration to, to take classes at the beat junkies Institute of sound, which is in Glendale. And I only live, 
I live less than 30 minutes from this, probably maybe 20, 25 minutes. And I thought about maybe just signing up and taking classes with them because I, you know, I've been DJing now since 93, but like my scratching skills are pretty much where they were when I first got started. And it's like, I could up my game a little bit and just be a little bit cleaner in the mix. And maybe that's the excuse I need is to, is to go and, and get some brush up skills from, you know, Babs or, or Jay or, you know, Melody, whoever, you know, was working at the, at the Institute that day. But obviously like the pandemic happened and they had to shut down operations, at least temporarily. I haven't actually checked to see if they're reopened yet, but you know, maybe once I, you know, I'm about to turn 50 in about two years. So maybe in my sixth decade of living, I'll finally become a better, a better turntablist on some level. We got to give a shout out to Beat Junkies Institute of Sound. They're actually an official certified school for Serato as well. And if you're, they, they've been streaming on Twitch. They do these really cool um, sessions on Twitch, uh, like a yeah. home, homeroom, I think it's called. And, and you can actually, um, you can, it's, it's interactive, so you can follow along uh, on, their, on their sessions as well. But yeah, Babu and the, and the Beat Junkies, Jay, Rhettmatic, um, Mr. Chalk. Melody. Shortcut, melody, yeah, you know. Yep, sure. Sure. Uh, yeah, all those guys. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, such an incredible and important group as well. Foundational. Absolutely. If I could just give a quick shout out to uh, the Mansta in the chat here is asking if this is the same Ollie Wang from the Rec Music, you know, hip hop days. Absolutely. And uh, you know, you were asking me earlier about like how I got my start writing. I actually got my start writing on internet. Um, not even like I guess. Would they be considered would that that would I guess that would be considered a message board, right? So this is back in the 90s. Like this is before the World Wide Web existed, but Usenet groups existed. So my start writing about music, writing about hip hop specifically, were in forums like recmusic.hiphop. I wasn't a particularly good writer. Um, a lot of my opinions, I'm glad, are buried very, very deep into a digital hole that many people can't find, which is good because I was young and, and I said a lot of dumb shit back then. I mean, I don't think it was shit that would get me canceled, but it was stuff like, I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember saying that Illmatic is, was, was overrated, which is not an opinion that I, I hold on to now, but it's at the time in 94, I was like, controversial. is this album really that good? Um, and yeah, uh, actually, yes. In fact, it, it really is that good, but that's the sort of stuff that I would write about is that that was my first form for writing about music was, and I didn't, I didn't realize I was writing about music. That wasn't like my intent. It was just a space in which I could write about music. Um, and those were the Usenet boards in the early nineties. So that shout out to rec music, hip hop, shout out to soul strut. Um, you know, these were, these were vital, vital to sort of how I got my start. Absolutely. And your, your blog, soulsides.com. Um, yes. Yeah. Definitely worth checking that out. If you're not familiar, um, I, I've I've learned a thing or two on there. It's it's fantastic. Um, I love it. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna move on a little bit. Um, are you familiar with 88 Rising? Uh, I am. I mean, the the, the record label. Uh, I mean, most of what I've, most of what I know about them is because uh, my good friend Hua Su wrote about them for the New Yorker, and I read his article. And it's like, oh, okay, now I know more about the history of of the label. Um, you know, I like some of the groups like Joji, I like his music uh, off of there, but I don't follow them closely and I don't really know a ton about their history beyond what was in the article. I, I guess it just, that is kind of leading into my, uh, my question I, I wanted to ask about like, who's doing kind of what the Filipino DJ culture in the Bay did for the kind of the current generation of Asian American youth today in a similar fashion, if it's not necessarily specifically DJing is, you know, is, is there somebody else like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I'm the best person to ask because I don't really, you know, I don't go out a lot. Like I'm not seeing stuff 
uh, a lot of what I learn about contemporary pop culture now comes through my daughter. Um, and so, you know, she's super into like a lot of people, right? Really into BTS. And I think in general, I'm very fascinated by how the global popularity of K-pop, which is absolutely like, you know, cross-racial and cross-ethnic. I mean, their fan base is like a freaking Benetton ad, right? Um, like how I'm, I mean, it's one of those things where it's going to take us, you know, five to 10 years to be able to then look back on this period in which K-pop really crossed over on a global level. And to think about like, how did that change people's perception around race, ethnicity, sexuality, masculinity, um, you know, femininity, music. I mean, I mean, all these layers that exist within K-pop, which are completely fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, I do because of its prevalence and the way in which it's introducing, right, Asian faces, you know, on in this global media market, it's bound to have some kind of influence and repercussions and reverberations that, again, but it's going to take us years to know what those echoes look like and how they may have shifted things for, uh, you know, a generation of people growing up around it. Yeah, definitely. And the, the fact that they are, as like you said, kind of as huge as they are, they're the most mainstream, like everybody is familiar with them. I'm thinking kind of, I guess, on a subculture level, I was thinking like certain platforms like SoundCloud, um, you know, groups like Selection where, you know, like you kind of to what you're touching on there where there's, you know, mixed races and mixed genders, you know, and breaking down yeah. stereotypes. I, I guess, would you say like SoundCloud and places like Twitch have become places for those? I mean, my guess is I would actually throw TikTok in there because so many people that I talk to who are my age who study music, like they recognize that TikTok has become like a dominant player and how new music gets introduced and circulated. Actually, not even just new music, old music, because I'll be playing stuff in the car from like 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And my daughter's like, oh, yeah, I know that song. I'm like, how do you know this? She's like, oh, it's big on TikTok. I'm just, it just blows my mind every time because it seems kind of random almost, like what ends up becoming big on TikTok. In any case, um, again, you would have to probably talk to someone who's more, you know, integrated within sort of this world and circulating within it. Like, I don't actually spend like a, like I spend more time listening to podcasts than I do to music part i mean i don't know maybe it's half and half but certainly i spend a lot of time just listening to podcasts rather than listening to music i don't spend time you know on soundcloud or mixcloud very often at all um and so i feel disconnected uh, anyone who is in the audience there who uh you know knew me from the soul strut days knows that my reputation is i am disconnected from the streets and that has not changed in the 20 years uh since i started on soul strut so oliver wong still disconnected from the streets <laughs> that's hilarious um but um, you've done, speaking of, you know, uh, the journalist side of, of your career, you've done great articles for NPR, Wax Poetics in particular. Um, I love Wax Poetics. Shout out Wax Poetics. I know that they're uh, relaunched. They've come back. It's yes. great. Yeah, they've relaunched. It's awesome. Yeah, well, I've, I've, been, I've been doing pieces for them. It's great. Awesome. It's great to hear that you'll be contributing still to the Wax Poetics legacy. Um, and, um, and also, yeah, like the artists that you've done, uh, I read a bunch of articles on NPR, Raphael Sadiq, The Internet. Patrice Russian and more. Um, like, what is that? What is what is it that you love about that side of digging into music? I mean, at the risk of like offering a really simplistic answer, it's just it's just good stories, and that's not unique to music. I could be writing about food or the movies or I mean anything, right? And you can still find good stories. But I think. 
because I surround my life, like literally and figuratively, right? I surround my life in music. It's learning about these different kinds of musical stories. Um, so to give an example, like Patrice Russian, you know, I, I think where I got started with that is there was, there was the Electra uh, records, sorry, the Patrice Russian Electra years anthology that came out. And I had listened, I mean, you know, I knew songs like Forget Me Nots, but I never really sat with like Patrice Russian very much. But when I saw that comp was coming out, something just kind of in my head was like, you should try to write about that because you should try to learn more about Patrice. And so I ended up writing the review, which then led to after that review ran. And I felt very like illuminated because I learned so much more about her that I didn't know before. And I, and I realized how important she was within the LA music scene that I now, you know, I live in LA and I grew up in LA. Um, how incredibly talented she was, not just as a singer, but as a songwriter, as a producer, as an arranger, as an instrumentalist. I mean, she's a lot of ways like very much cut from the same cloth as someone like a Stevie Wonder, you know, just isn't given the credit for it. Um, but writing that review, uh, the vinyl me please right the label that reissues stuff they reached out to me because they were reissuing one of her albums um that was on originally on electra and asked if i would be down to write the liner notes for it um and because of that i would get to interview her and i was like yeah sign me the hell up i would love to talk to patrice russian and it was great she was a fantastic interview and then when i had that opportunity I then invited her to come on to the podcast that I do with Morgan Rhodes, Heat Rocks, to talk about Minnie Ripperton's Come to My Garden. And to have like Patrice freaking Russian, right? Talk about how much listening to Minnie Ripperton and Charles Stepney influenced her musical thinking. I mean, that was amazing. And I would never have gotten to that point if I hadn't started with just this curiosity of, I should probably try to learn more about Patrice Russian. Let me review these, this, this anthology because it gives me an excuse to kind of like dive into her life and her career. And then it just created like this amazing domino chain um, that led to me, you know, being able to interview her a few different times. And I mean, this has happened many times over the years. It's happened with Joe Patton. It happened um, much more recently with uh, Labby Sifri. Um, you know, my my interest in writing about music kind of opens these remarkable doors um, that I'm able to, I, I've been enriched by in so many different ways over the years. Um, actually, I want to, I want to expand on the Lab Labby Safri um, uh, story a little bit. I'm just going to, what I would like to do is quickly play that, um, that classic, probably most well-known song. <laughs> I'm just going to play the intro and I'm going to skip to the other part, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Hit that cue point, man. <laughs> Why don't I have this uh, cue pointed up? You can, you can, you know where the break is from the waveform, though. Yeah. So you can yeah. just kind of, you know, scrub right there. All right, so this is the other part of this song, which is incredible. All the all the people that dig for records will know this one. Any fans of Eminem or Jay Z will probably know this.
so yeah so that is um that that artist you were uh you've you've got a great story about this i read it on your blog on your blog and i'd love to hear you talk about it um in a little bit more detail yeah so so i mean for those unfamiliar i mean that that song is called i got the um it's by labby sifri who is a black british singer songwriter who got his start in the 1970s um that was a song he recorded for polydor records um in the uk in i want to say what 1976 or 75 maybe um in any case i knew the only thing i knew about labby sifri when i uh, you know back in like the early 2000s was that song because it got sampled and because it got sampled it, it ended up on like these kind of like bootleg sample anthologies so that's the first time I, I had a copy of it and it was cool right i mean that's like i mean the, the song itself is dope i mean we, we heard it right but i didn't really know anything else about labby sifri beyond the fact that like he made this one song that ended up on a couple comps and then one of the things that i've been involved with for uh, 20 years um, as a music writer and a music scholar is this thing called the Pop Conference, which is an annual gathering of music writers, music scholars, um, artists, you know, fans, etc. Used to be in Seattle. Um, and there was a paper there that was given, and I, I forget what year it was. It was maybe 09 or 2010, about a little, little bit over 10 years ago, I think, given by Charles Aaron, a music writer who um, was best known, I think, for writing for Spin Magazine. And he had his paper was about Labby and it was about him trying to interview Labby because he wanted to learn more about Labby's life and music. And the other thing I forgot, I mean, Labby Sifri is he's black and he's British. Um, he's also gay and he's one of the few kind of like out, um, you know, black British artists, pop artists, um, you know, of his era. I don't know if he was out at the very, very beginning of his career, but eventually it became something that was very well known about him when he had a resurgence in the 1980s. And because uh, he wrote a, a song that became uh, kind of an anti-apartheid song that became a hit in the in the mid late eighties. Any case, and I was so I was so moved by what Charles had to say about Labby and just um, and his career and his music that it made me want to go out and I'm like, okay, I know like the one song that because Dr. Dre and Jay Z sampled it. I know that one song. What else does he have? And the minute I began to listen to the rest of his catalog, especially in the 1970s, I was just completely, just absolutely blown away by it. I mean, just the quality of the songwriting, the musicianship, the production. I mean, you name it. Like, these albums were incredible. Um, beginning in 1970 or 71 when his first LP came out. And I basically went out and found, and you know, the thing is, none, none, of, those, none of his records had distribution in the US originally. These were um, albums that were only ever released um, in the European market back in the 70s. So to, to, to get, so it's for that reason, that's why a lot of Americans didn't know about him at all because he wasn't going to, he wasn't on the radio and you couldn't, you literally could not find his records in the US. And um, so I, everything I was buying, thank God for eBay, right? Is I'm getting all these records shipped over from the UK and but I'm just absorbing all this and it's just mind blowing. Like the, the, this, I just couldn't believe how good, how good his music was and that no one seemed to know this outside of obviously his like existing fan base, but no one I knew knew anything about it. Any case at some later point. So this was like now fast forward, maybe, I don't know, five years or so. And I decided just to write on my blog on soul sides, just like a testimonial about how much I appreciate labby and his music and how amazing i think it was 
wasn't very long, right? But you know, a few paragraphs. Well, as it turns out, Labby saw it. I don't know, you know, maybe someone sent it to, I don't know how he found his way to it. I never asked him, but he saw it. And when it came time, so this was now about like, go back a year ago. Um, the 50th, the 50th anniversary of his first album. Yeah. So his first album came out in 1970. So on the 50th occasion, 50th anniversary occasion of his first release, him and his manager wanted to put together a career retrospective box set, which includes every single studio album, plus like dozens of, of vault tracks and put it into a box set. And he did not want to write the liner notes. He actually wrote very good liner notes that were about him, about his life, about you know his perspective, his relationships, et cetera, philosophies. He already included those in a bunch of CD reissues of his albums that came out, I think, in the late 90s, or maybe it was in the in the early 00s. But in any case, he didn't want to write the liner notes to this box set. But because he had seen what I had written, his manager hit me up on email, and it's like, you know, Labby likes your work. Would you be interested in writing these liner notes? And it's because I had written, you know, I don't know, like a page of text on a, on a blog from five or six, seven years earlier that Labby had seen and liked it enough that he wanted me to write the liner notes for it. And that ended up becoming, I mean, that was kind of, an, the, the liner notes itself was like an adventure in itself because originally we had agreed that they'd be maybe two to 3,000 words long, which is actually, that's fairly substantial for liner notes because, you know, a booklet is small, can only hold so many things. But the more I talked with him and the more I realized how little had been written about him, especially in the 70s, um, there just was not a lot of existing stuff that was in the you know the back pages of, of British music magazines. I looked. I mean, I looked really hard to find it. It just wasn't there. And so I realized a lot of the stuff that I was interviewing him about were things that had never really been shared before. And so it's like, well, I got to include this because no one's ever no one's ever heard these stories before. And then to make a long story short, Actually, it's already a very long story. I can't make any shorter. I mean, that like initial two to three thousand words, I think, ended up being like eight to nine thousand words. Um, and I was really scared to go back and say, "This is going to come in like three times longer than what we originally agreed to." Is that okay? And you know, to their, I, 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 I need not have worried because the reply that came back was, "You make it as long as it needs to be." doesn't matter how long it goes make it as long as you feel like it needs to be and that's what they ended up running like they ran like a eight thousand word set of liners um that came out in the box set which came out last fall um it is certainly amongst the most like gratifying experiences i've had as a music writer like in my career is to be able to do that because i believe so much in like labby's importance and greatness and uniqueness and i want everyone to listen to his music if they can um, especially, I think it was his third album. It's on my wall. Um, laughing, loving, uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get the order wrong. I think it's, uh, laughing, lying, loving. Oh God, I'm, this is terrible. It's my favorite album by him, but I can't remember the exact title okay. because it's four different words and it's in a particular order. Um, but it's like, it's just, it's so, it is so, so, so amazing. Like it's just sublime. And, but all his records from the seventies were, were, were that good so yeah that's so cool man so Labby Sifre you gotta get the box set or at least man, I'm sure there's some crazy samples on there if you know he's responsible for one of the most classic uh, records right you know some hits classic big hits were made off of that one one record alone yeah 
It's crazy. Yeah, and most of his music, most of his music is on, I believe, is on streaming. There's probably, I know there's one album that I don't think ever made it, but a lot of his key ones, including the one that I just mentioned, um, Crying, Laughing, Loving, Lying. There we go. Um, and then the album that I got to was off of, I believe, is that's from Remember My Song. I'm pretty sure, I'm almost positive that's like on Spotify and other streaming platforms. So you can find, I mean, his stuff is not obscure, like in the way that like, I don't know, Nick Drake was obscure before that VW ad. Like Labby stuff has circulated, but he's always been very much like on the underground relative to like what the mainstream is. Um, Most people of... know his work. Oh, go ahead. No, no, please finish. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, if anyone knows a Labby Sifri song, it's not his recording. It was the cover by Madness of It Must Be Love. But that's a Labby Sifri song that he originally recorded that Madness then covered, I think, in the early 80s. And then it became like a big hit in the US and the UK. So if oh. anyone knows a Labby Sifri song besides I Got The, what they're going to know is It Must Be Love. But they know the Madness version. They don't know Labby's original version. I don't even know that. That's awesome. That's a knowledge gem right there. I'm going to have to if dig you, in. If you listen to it, you, you'll, you'll know the song. I mean, it's it's such a big hit from the 80s. Um, you'll recognize it. I, 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 I'm almost guarantee you will. Yeah. Okay, so so speaking of digging in the crates and, um, you know, finding, ex, ex, uh, I guess, exhuming classic records, or is there anything even just that's not even digging in the crates, just that you're listening, that you'd currently recommend anyone in the chat or anyone who's watching check out right now? I mean, there's a band I really like out of the Inland Empire here in um, Southern California. So that would be further out east from like L.A. proper. So like, you know, think of Bakes, think, think Bakersfield, Riverside, et cetera. It's a group called um, Brain Story. Um, they came out with one of my favorite albums of the last few years. I think this came out maybe two years ago called Buck. Um, they have a brand new EP that uh, I think is dropping in June. I don't rem- I, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but I like that there's sound a lot. Like it's a blend of, it's very soulful, but has like a lot of like psychedelic rock and sort of what I consider to be kind of like dream pop influences as well. I just, I mean, it's, it's, they, they don't fit to me in like a hyper conventional, like set of genre terms. All I know is that every time I hear something they do, I'm really into it. And so, uh, yeah, they're called Brain Story, and and like I said, they're they're really one of my favorite new groups that I've discovered in the last you know five years or so. I got I got them up right here. Is there a specific track? Oh, of, sure. of Buck that you'd recommend? Um, I maybe Dead Dead End. Okay, let's see. Let's 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 run it. We'll do a quick preview. We're probably going to get through the whole thing, but let's let's go. This is Brain Story with Dead End.
That is fantastic. Um, what a yeah, great suggestion. I love their sound. It's, yeah, their, their sound is so great. I'm, I wrote down my notes someplace what the name of their new EP is, but they're, they're signed to Big Crown Records um, out of Brooklyn. And if you go to the Big Crown website, you can, you can find information on their new EP there. I can't hear you anymore, unfortunately. So oh, here we go. Whatever you, there we go. Yeah, my bad. I had myself muted. That's going straight in the, uh, right into the uh, the the playlist for sure. That's a fantastic, uh, fantastic record. And the new EP, I believe, is called Ripe, on Big Crown Records. Yes, there we go. Ripe. That's right. Ripe. I was going to say Rise. I'm like, I don't think that's quite right, but yeah, Ripe on, uh, and they're on Big Crown. And that EP, I think, is supposed to drop in June. Oh, awesome. So I'll keep my eye out for that one. Brain Story. Awesome. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, yeah, I have a very important question. We ask all of our guests this question. Um, the the you know the Serato tagline is the power of music, and I'm really curious to know what the power of music is, what that means to you, what that's what that says to you. I mean, without getting like too I don't know pedagogical about this, the thing that I I tell I tell my students is that one of the things that makes I think music such a powerful in a lot of ways i think kind of uniquely powerful force in our daily lives is that music is simultaneously deeply deeply personal and individual right is that you know the way that we connect with a song or with an artist feels like it, it it's the most intimate thing that could belong to us on one level right but music is also like an inherently communal form right we listen to music together we go out dancing together um when we we when we meet someone and we realize that they have the same musical tastes as us, there may not be necessarily a lot of other things that we share in common. We can come from very different backgrounds, from different um, you know, experiences. But if we like the same artists, well, that gives us a very powerful point of commonality. Friendships, you know, long, you know, communities are built from nothing more than just a shared love of like a song. Like that's all you need. So music, I think, is both deeply, intimately personal, yet also inherently, profoundly collective and communal. And I think it's that duality to it, which is why music continues to be like one of the most powerful cultural forces that we have in the world and has been since, you know, the first person figured out like how to put together a rhythm, like, I don't know, banging rocks together or, you know, created a, a melody by playing something. Um, so that, that to me is the, is the power of music. It connects us because it informs who we think we are but by extension, it allows us to find others like us and then to create those human connections through it. That's Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think that's great. Um, so I, the last thing I wanted to, to, to talk about is, um, um, I, I want to give a quick shout out while, while we're here right now. Um, Les Toulousen is in the chat. Les is a fantastic... Yeah, I see her. Yeah, she's a fantastic DJ. And actually, um, since we were on the subject of um, Filipino music history, she has a fantastic yeah. Twitch channel that if if you haven't checked it out already is uh, highly recommended she plays um opm uh original filipino music and um it, man there's so many great cuts that i i um i've just learned uh, or and heard and, and heard of through her channel and uh, yeah big props to Lester Lucen for for doing that uh, ripping so so heavy there 
and, and to give you an exact example of what I was talking about a moment ago, I met Les because um, I was in D.C. a couple of summers ago to do something um, with the Smithsonian, and we were seated next to each other at some dinner. And I think within the first like five, 10 minutes, we were already just talking about like different OPM records that we have and just kind of connecting on who has what and what we're each of us are looking for. So even though like I'd never met her before, right, we found something in common almost instantaneously that we could connect with one another. And again, power of music right there. Yeah, I, that was, I'm glad we got, we got there. That's totally it, man, 100%. Um, so kind of, we've definitely gone over time. So um, <laughs> there's just a couple more things I want to get in here. Um, oh, Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah, we have. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Thank you, everyone, for, for, for hanging in with, here with us and, and, and staying, uh, staying tuned. Um, the one thing I, I, I've, I've always thought about is um, they say know your history to navigate the future. And I think this is specifically interesting for you because as a professor of sociology, um, you, know, you know so much about history as well and, and human behavior. Um, but what would you say is the best way to learn Asian American history? Is there any, do you have any kind of specifically good book recommendations or anything like that that um, you might recommend somebody who wants to do a deeper dive? Wow. Okay, that's a that's a big question. It um, is. I'm, I know it's probably a, a couple questions in one. I mean, certainly. I mean, there. You know, at this point, there are multiple right histories of Asian American uh, of, of Asian America that you can find out there. Um, you know, I reviewed. Oh God! And the problem is, is I'm not going to remember the title of it off the top. I think it's like Asian America, like a colon a blank history, and. This is really embarrassing because I reviewed the book for the New York Times, but I don't remember right off the top the author's name. Um, on a side note, you know, one of the things that people warn me about that as you get older, like your memory begins to go. And I was like, I don't believe you because I always thought I had a good memory, but like I do not like it. It's the, the older I get, the basic names I just start to forget. It's, it's, um, it's actually kind of frightening. But in any case, um, I mean, that was. That was a pretty good example. I look, I know we're live and this is kind of awkward, but I'm just going to look it up because it's, this is annoying me right now. That's totally um, cool. I, I was just going to add to if I can add to oh, that. It's, so it's, it's the it's the making of Asian America by Professor Erica Lee. And I thought for a kind of primer history that's written fairly accessibly, it's you know, it's as good of a point place to start um, if you're looking for a book. Um, you know, there's going to be obviously a lot of documentaries, especially ones that have come out of the Center for Asian American Me Media out of um, San Francisco or visual communications out of Los Angeles that uh, people should just look up those those websites and those organizations because they produced many, many excellent documentaries that um, can tell aspects of this story. Um, so, I mean, those are kind of places that I would suggest beginning if you're young enough or you're, you have the access to college classes. Just take an intro to Asian American studies class. I mean, when I did that as an undergraduate at Berkeley, it completely changed my life. So that's the other, you know, the other resource that's available to folks. And that's good for for anybody who wants to kind of open their mind a little bit to the history of, of things. Um, I guess if I could just add on to that, um, as, like Serato is a, is a New Zealand company. It's a Pacific Island. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, it's important to acknowledge that you know a lot of the history that we've learned is not necessarily being correct um but through you know books and and, and conversation and friends uh it's been a great opportunity to learn about different perspectives and um 
yeah, I, I think the two things that really helped me uh, was reading books, one specifically about the history of New Zealand by Michael King. And as a Canadian, I also learned a lot from David Suzuki's uh, autobiography, which is also, he's a national treasure in Canada, if you're not familiar with David Suzuki. Mm-hmm. But he has a very fantastic um, book that I highly recommend um, checking out if you're, if you're interested in those things. But um, I wanted to thank you uh, dearly for your time, Oliver. Thank you so much for, for being here. And, um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to shout anyone out or, or let us know anything that you're working on and where people can find you before we go. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if I have a chance to plug, like, check out the podcast that I do with with Morgan Rhodes. So the, the basic conceit of Heat Rocks is every week we talk about an album. And most times we invite a guest to come in to talk about an album with us. Um, we just recorded an episode last night with um, jazz pianist, uh, composer uh, Vijay Iyer um, about Prince's Sign of the Times. And, uh, you know, we I kind of like this conversation. Usually we budget about an hour and I think our conversation went close to two hours because we just had so much to say about Prince of that era, about Sign of the Times, about the influence of both Prince and that album. Um, and the thing I love about doing Heat Rocks, and I hope it comes across to those who listen to it, is you know once a week I get to have a smart conversation about and a very engaged conversation about music with people. And there is very few things in life that I like better than the opportunity to just to have you know these great conversations about music with folks and so heat rocks is like my excuse to get to do that on a weekly basis with like extraordinary people and um you know it's it's the one thing that i just would love and we, we've been doing this now for three and a half years so our, our four-year anniversary is coming up in october and but you know I, I never pass up an opportunity just to kind of like throw it out there in terms of if you think i have vaguely you know interesting things to say check out the podcast. Um, otherwise people can find me. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter. Um, I, I kind of, I mean, I guess I use Instagram more than any other kind of social media platform. And you can find me at soul sides, S O U L S I D E S. And then there's my blog, which I, I update very, very, very infrequently. Um, and that's at soul sides.com. Awesome. Yeah. I highly recommend the podcast and the blog. I, uh, I, I really enjoyed the podcast a lot. You've talked to a lot of cool people that I that I, I know as well and, and great stories, great conversation about great records and stuff. And it's really interesting. Like you had one with Night Jewel and Kraftwerk. You had... Um, oh, yeah, it was a great one. <laughs> yes, so rad. So, um, yeah, thank you. Definitely recommend checking that out. Thank you again for your time. Before we go, I want to play um, uh, a, a video that we used actually... Um, that, shout out to Proof and, and Marky, who, who are the organizers of Spread Love, which is an organization out of the Bay Area. Um, they're helping. Yeah, shout out, guys. Yeah, they're helping put us uh, put this this whole uh, all these events together um, for the month of May, which is celebrating uh, Asian and um, Asian American and Pacific Islanders throughout the month heritage of May. Month. It's the Heritage mm-hmm. Month, and um, the video I want to play is uh, by KQED, and it's uh, inspired by your book Legions of Boom. Mm-hmm. So we'll. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, we'll say goodbye on that note, and we'll 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 watch that. It's a five minute thing. So, thanks again, uh, Oliver, and thank you everyone who's tuned in today. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk about this, and stay tuned for uh, May twenty first, where we have the big uh, streaming event with a bunch of DJs and the other events throughout the month. All right, guys. Hey, thank thank you for having me, and thanks to all the audience who came and, and sat through listening to us talk for like two and a half hours, which is <laughs> remarkable. Yes, thank you. All right. Back then, every block had 
a DJ group. In one high school, there would be two DJ groups, even sometimes more than that. It was just such a, like, a groundbreaking thing to have that many DJ groups concentrated into one area. The joke is, yeah, every Filipino family must have a DJ within two degrees of separation, I guess. We weren't playing music that everybody played, that the radio played. It was underground post-disco music. We then put our little Filipino spin on things. It was just pretty much kids just getting together and wanting to play music for people and get everybody to dance. And we would bring the DJ equipment to the hall party and have the party there and have dances. This is around 1982, yeah. Westmore High School, Daly City. You and Mike Patricio, you guys were just starting as Fusion. I remember being in the garage party, watching you guys. Watching you guys mix, listening to the music, like, that's pretty cool. Somebody came up to us and uh, asked, hey, have you ever heard of two turntables and a mixer? We put two unmatched turntables together and started trying to mix two songs together. Didn't know what we were doing. Then we finally got a real mixer, and uh, that's when I started getting it. The time that we did, from 1983 till mid-1985, Man, so many groups just sprouted out of nowhere. And these competitions were happening everywhere. I go to one of the guys' garages in Davy City. The whole crew is already there. So we tried something out. We hooked up four turntables, wow. right? And right off the bat, like within an hour, he was throwing stuff in, I would put stuff in, and we're going back and forth. And it was that moment that we were officially Spintronic. Wow. This is the test. Yo, one, two, one, two. What the people in the place to be? We are Spintronic from Daily City. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time I heard four turntables. I was like, wow, how fast is, how fast is that guy? Then I see two guys, each with two turntables. I thought that was amazing. And we were battling on those things. The battles back then, during the mobile disc jockey era, you would have sometimes three or four DJs, groups in one hall setting up their equipment. We all kind of just saw what each other were doing. It just became a competition thing too. Like, you DJ too, I DJ too. Well, I can be better than you. So remember what all DJs used to do back then if they had a secret weapon record, they would put tape yeah. on the record. The they would cover the label mm -hmm. so that the 20 or 30 guys crowding you, yeah. while you were DJing, who was taking notes, yeah. wouldn't know what record you bought and figure out what song it was. Back then, there was no social media, there's no technology. The only form of music back then was cassette tapes. So we would record our four turntable mixes. Every member of the group would share it. They'd go to school or give it to their cousin, and it would get re-recorded. Next generation tape, next generation tape, and hand it out. And it would spread, whether it's Daily City or outside of Daily City, just based on these cassette tapes. 
I was always doing mobile gigs, and then my transition just became more into the battle scene. We started doing a lot of more scratching, a lot of more tricks. In 92, we won DMC World Championship with me, Cuba, and Mike. We tried to form a rap group and um, be producers, and it kind of just transitioned into that phase of DJing. Maybe it was a way of uh, guys staying out of trouble. Yeah. Maybe it's a different alternative to, to sports if, if you weren't into the gang scene. Yep. Keep yourself busy while your middle class parents were at work in downtown San Francisco or wherever. Well, I just thought it was a very unique skill. Like, no one in my school had it. I'm the student to him, so. I, we just added the J in my name, Jaden, to make Proda J. And I just wanted to be like my dad, too. I can be like him or over him, over his level right now. It had a great impact on, on the DJing scene in the world, yeah.